Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This podcast contains discussions of child abuse, sexual repression and sexual abuse, suicide, racism, misogyny, PTSD and PTSD symptoms, and spiritual oppression and abuse, including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we will be mentioning some of these concepts in a general way without any graphic detail. If any of these topics or other triggering topics will be mentioned in great detail, we will let you know at the beginning of each individual episode, as well as in the show notes for that episode. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden podcast. My name is Gabrielle Hakoen, and I am here with my co-host. Hi, I'm Sadie Carpenter. And if I have somehow failed to make you mad before in the run of this podcast, I will probably make you mad today. (laughs) Uh, 100% chance of that happening. Yeah, pretty much. More more seriously, I do want to give you all a heads up. Of course, in this episode, we're talking about abortion, and that's going to involve a lot of things. We're going to be talking some medical talk. We're going to talk about a little bit about the images that pro-birth people use to promote their cause, which those images are very disturbing. Of course, we're also going to be using a lot of medical language. You probably could have predicted all of that. I want to add an additional trigger warning because we are also going to be talking about miscarriage premature birth, sexual assault, as well as the Holocaust in this episode. So there's just, there's a lot in here. And I do hope that you'll listen along with us. We will do our absolute best to only say what needs to be said. But those are some additional topics that you might want to be aware that will be coming up today. So one thing before we get uh, into this, do I want to address, so you said pro-birth. 
the mm-hmm. term pro-birth. Is that the term we're using? Because I like I honestly I never know what the correct term is. And every time I use a different one, somebody corrects me and tells me, oh, actually, you're wrong. This is the right term. I, yeah, so I always I thought it that. was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I always thought it was pro-life versus pro-choice was yeah. what I was heard. Those are the terms that a lot of people use. I am not offended or upset if you say pro-life in this episode. Personally, I feel like pro-life is a term that is just slightly disingenuous because it assumes right there in the term that all pregnancies are equal to human life. So people who are not pro-life tend to say pro-birth or use the stronger term pro-forced birth. Personally, I don't use the term pro-forced birth. Personally, I don't use the term pro-forced birth for most anti-abortion people because I don't feel like it applies to every person. It applies to a few people who are against abortion, but certainly not everyone. We're going to we're going to get into all of that. But there's yeah, there's a lot of loaded terms and it's hard to even know if you're using the right word. Yeah. See, we just like we just started this episode. We're already getting into semantics and terminology. But of course, terminology is a huge part of this issue because different words mean different things to different people. So in the interest of overall fairness, because I'm I I wouldn't say I'm always the most fair person when it comes to this stuff, because I've been known to say things that are quite prejudicial. (laughs) But like. Yeah, I mean that's that's kind of what I do. I don't know, um, but in, in this issue, I'm I mean, slightly this is too nice most of the time, and you're slightly too mean most of the time, and we it balance balances. Each other out. <laughs> I, that's that's the way I see it. It's just kind of a Zen thing. Yeah, I don't know. I'm like, so I'm I'm going to use the term pro life in this because that's the term that people who say they're pro life usually use mm-hmm. to describe themselves, and I think that. Yeah, I think that uh, saying pro-birth is ma- it feels a bit more loaded to me. It feels a bit more prejudicial because, you know, like I saw that whole these people aren't pro-life, they're pro-birth tweet from somebody got, you know, got shared like a, a million times and people are like, yeah, yes, you know. Yeah. And I understand why you'd feel that way. I feel that pro-life is also a loaded term. It comes you can't use the term without acknowledging the assumption that cell division or a heartbeat equals personhood, but there aren't really terms on this topic that are neutral. No. Like all of these terms are loaded terms. Every single word we're using in this episode, more or less, is a loaded term. So I'm not gonna. Yeah, I don't think anybody's gonna be offended if you do use pro-life. Um, and I'm gonna mix terms quite a bit throughout this episode, and I'll just try to keep our audience aware of of different terminology that I'm using if it's not clear. So obviously, this is a big topic. We wanted to talk about this for a while, but we have held off on it for a couple of reasons. I think the biggest one is that we wanted to do it properly. We wanted to do it respectfully because as soon as this topic comes up, people get heated. But, you know, we like to laugh. We like to make jokes, uh, roast people from time to time. But I think this is a topic where we have to be earnest and we have to be honest and with various states enacting these dubiously legal bans and with the U.S. Supreme Court being what it is, I think the time has come for us to address this topic, to really just jump in headfirst. But before we get into that, uh, the Leaving Eden podcast, I just have to say the Leaving Eden podcast is the podcast about my co-host Sadie Carpenter's life in and escape from the independent fundamental Baptist cult that she was raised in. We talk about this cult, other cults, 
uh, religion, fundamentalism in general. Uh, we seek to promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought, and freedom of religion. So if you like this show, if you want to support this show, you can go and join our Patreon. We have actually just in the past few days made some changes to our uh, Patreon, uh, added some new benefits, added some new tiers. And one of the new tiers that we added is the Faith Promise Missions tier. Uh, and so if you join this tier, then you get a special shout out from us on every episode. So I would like to give a shout out to our first Faith Promise Missions tier patron, which is Kathleen Moncrief, or is it Moncrief? It looks French. Kathleen Moncrief. I'm going to just say, oh, she's a, 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 a French lady. I'm just going to say uh, Kathleen. Thank you. <laughs> Kathleen, thank you for your, uh, for your pledge uh, in our uh, Faith Promise Missions tier Patreon. And if you want to join our Faith Promise Missions tier Patreon, I can make fun of your name on the air too. <laughs> anyway, um, you can uh, also go to our Facebook group, which is going to be facebook.com slash groups slash Eden Exodus. You can interact with other fans. If you don't like something that we said on the Patreon, I mean, on the, the abortion episode, if you've got a real big opinion about it, you can go there and talk to other fans about it because they're going to have opinions as well. And you can go to our subreddit, which is also called Eden Exodus. Uh, join us there. Have a discussion there. Uh, what else? Sadie, is that it? Uh, I think we should let our audience know off the bat that in this episode, we are going to come down more on the pro-choice side of things. Mm-hmm. But in case that made you mad, let me make everybody else mad. We aren't going to maybe be as far left as some of our listeners would prefer. No. Yeah. So uh, like <laughs> I said, gonna just going to make everybody mad. Just going to just going to do it. You know what's going to happen? We're going to put out this episode and we're immediately going to get woke scolded. Oh, yeah. That's what's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're going to put out this episode and we're going to get backlash from both sides, which is just super fun. Um, yeah. This is- That's how you know you're right is if the if, is if the right wing hates you and the left wing hates you. That's how you know you're right. <laughs> well, this is one of those topics where if you're all the way to one extreme or the other, your people love you and the other team hates you. But if you're anywhere else on the spectrum, even if you're pretty close to one of the two sides – just everybody hates you. Just everybody. But I. It sounds like if you're uh, 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 like a, a faith led Christian, but you're like, you know what? Maybe the King James isn't the only version of the Bible. You know what I'm right. saying? Like. <laughs> yep. And I, I really hope that people with varying opinions will be willing to listen to this episode and hear us out because yeah. uh, we are going to. Try to be truthful and respectful and kind. Yeah, truthful is the big thing. Related to that, one thing that I wanted to avoid in this episode is sloganeering. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. So I want to avoid, yeah, I want to avoid these Twitter quip style points. You know, the ones that I'm talking about that don't, they, they don't add anything to discussion, but the type of things that, you know, like the type of things that get retweeted with a one more time for the people in the back clapping hands emojis. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It doesn't really do anything except sort of be like a rallying cry for people who already agree with us and alienate people who disagree with us more and make them not want to engage with us because I mean, I speak for myself. I don't know how you feel, but I feel like we need to give this topic the weight and respect that it deserves. I completely agree. Uh, I do want to disclose there are some of those slogans that really do speak to me. Oh, of course um, there are. There, there is. Some you just have to use self control. Yeah, um, <laughs> I am there. 
So every time I've been over my outline for this episode, I've had to physically resist typing like the one in that I really want to say right now that I'm not going to. You're right. They don't mean anything to people who already have their mind made up either way. I I don't know. I feel like there are episodes where that's the place for us to do that. And there are episodes where it's not. And this is a serious topic. So I, I don't feel like that's this is the place for us to, you know. Try to yeah. try to be snappy or quippy. No, I think I think that would be disingenuous. I think it would just be feeding into people's uh, pre-existing myopia. Yeah, uh, yeah. That, I mean, that's a, that's all the slogans really do is that they they don't get new people into the fold. They just motivate people who are already on your side. So if it's something that you saw in an Instagram infographic, that's not what we're going to do or say here. Yeah, like no shame if you enjoy those Instagram in- infographics, but that's not the the space we're trying to make on this episode. No, uh, personally. So I wouldn't say that I want to, quote unquote, find common ground, because I think this is another one of those situations where the two positions have two separate and irreconcilable perspectives on reality, on like, you know, what it's literally like what constitutes life. That's Mm -hmm. the thing that people have a difference, a a disagreement about. And like you literally can't prove somebody wrong if they think one thing or they think the other thing. Right. Mm -hmm. So like I'm not going to say like we're going to try to find common ground, but I think that we need to do this in a way that doesn't invalidate anybody's beliefs. And I'm going to like right off the bat say that Sadie and I are both supportive of reproductive freedom. Mm -hmm. So if that's not what you wanted to hear, sorry to disappoint you. I don't think that you're a bad person for believing what you believe. I'm not going to be on the show or this platform treating you like pariah because I think it would be disrespectful and counterproductive. For me personally, you know, politicians mm. who are not just giving lip service to pro-life causes, but actually enacting laws that prevent people who need safe abortion from accessing safe abortions, those people, there's a case for them being villains. But the average person, the average religious person or whoever, for whatever reason, is against abortion, those people are not villains, regardless of how much I do or don't think they're wrong. They're not evil villains. And if that describes you, I'm not going to treat you like a villain on my podcast because, you know, that's an opinion that I held in the past. um, And I know that I certainly didn't mean any harm by it. I really thought that I had the correct opinion. And just because I've changed my mind doesn't mean I can turn around and demonize you for holding the exact opinion that I used to hold. I think that's just awful. Jack Scott's a villain. Jack Howell's a villain. Dave Howell's a villain. Josh Duggar's a villain. Allegedly. Oh wait, no, he um, is a villain because we know what he, we we know about stuff that has been proven. Yeah, um, like you're yeah. not a villain if you're no right. That's no. and another thing. Um, this episode's going to be slightly different from our Pride episode. In that episode, I presented what I think is a viable alternative to traditional interpretations of seven or eight scriptures that are used to dehumanize queer people. This is this is not what I'm going to do in this episode. I'm not going to make a doctrinal statement or try to use the Bible specifically to justify abortion. We're going to discuss some Bible verses, but this one is going to be more of um, try to be a little bit more holistic than that for this particular topic. I have extensive sources for this episode. They are probably not going to completely fit in the show notes. I'm going to publish all of my sources as a free post on our Patreon. So that post will be accessible to everyone, regardless of whether you financially support the show or not. Um, thank you to the patrons who make that all possible. But if you, but I, I have uh, articles for further reading that will be linked there. 
I have all of the articles that I am referencing in this in this um, episode so that you'll yeah. be able to access those. So anybody who says that our show is not well researched <laughs> or poorly researched, um, you know, that would be... regardless of the the most recent volley, I have I've heard that a few times and it kind of irked me. Um, so I think that maybe I should just start publishing my sources so people can see my you know twenty. 20 references for every episode yeah she she's an extremely thorough person that is a baseless accusation um, but as you can as you can see if you don't think that we're thorough we are 15 minutes into this episode and we have not actually started the discussion yet so as you know extended and uncensored uh versions of our episodes are available on our patreon uh we're not going to put anything on there that we like that is like essential we're like just basically the extra stuff is going to go on there. So if you want to hear like extra stuff, maybe we dive a little bit deeper into some of these sources or maybe we make an ex- uh, extended chain of Simpsons references. Yeah, that's going to go on the Patreon. If you want to hear that, that's where it is. This is just the regular version, unless you're listening to it on the Patreon, in which case it isn't. And thank you for giving us money anyway. Uh, <clears throat> so the and, and my last thing is that this episode is not comprehensive. Um, I realized that we would have needed probably two or three parts if we wanted to really cover everything. And if I, and I thought about doing that, I really did. But then I realized that I would still miss something. That there, there's no way that I could get a truly comprehensive resource together, even if I had unlimited time. So what we're going to do is we're going to do our best. We're just not going to get to every argument. We're going to try to be medically accurate because a lot of times people say things that just don't make sense. So we're mm-hmm. we're actually going to try to be medically accurate in this one. Yeah, and it's really something how the most ardent anti-abortion people are also the people who seem to know the least about human reproduction and also be super against sex ed, which is a bit wild to me because you would think that if this was so important, they would want to have their facts straight. Let's get into it. Almost 17 minutes into this episode, let's start this discussion. Okay, Uh, what did the IFB say? What did the IFB teach you about abortion when you were growing up? What was the discourse like? How was it talked about? We were told a lie about people who have abortions. And I think we should start with clarifying this because I think the foundation of a lot of this abortion discourse, at least from the very far right side, is founded on a falsehood. So do you care to elaborate? We were told that people who get abortions are largely made up of one type of person. So this person goes around habitually and recklessly, has unsafe sex, usually with multiple partners concurrently, often in a one-night stand situation. And this person doesn't use any kind of birth control at all. They, so like a female Barney Stinson. Or a uterus having Barney Stinson, sure, because... That's true. We do get accused of being of of woke platitudes, though. So, <laughs> you, know, you know what? Um, Wear that with a badge of honor. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I don't. I don't care. Um, uh, but I'm not going to be a turf on my own podcast. Um, Good call. Where plenty of people who are not women also need abortions. This person uh, just habitually having unsafe sex does not use any kind of birth control. Isn't interested in birth control at all. Um, And they just have this thought in their head, well, if I get pregnant, I'll have an abortion. Eventually, it catches up to them and they get Mm. pregnant. They have an abortion without any deliberation or any thought. There's no like, should I do this? There's no thought about, is this moral? Um, They just don't even think about it. They go get an abortion. And then before they're even healed from the abortion, they're out having unsafe sex again. 
And they think to themselves, well, when I get pregnant again, I will just have another abortion. So as they go through life, they have multiple abortions. They never begin using any kind of birth control because abortion is just this super convenient option for them. Well, you know, when it catches up to me and I get pregnant, that's what I do. Does this person exist? Well, we're going to talk about that. Uh, but I, I think it's really easy to look at this tale that I just spun for you and say, oh, that's immoral. Like, I think that's immoral to continue on using the most harsh option for not having a baby when there are so many other ways to not have a baby. It's also very bad for you. Yes, that's incredibly hormonally. Oh, my goodness. I can't imagine. I cannot imagine. And if nothing else, okay, so say that you're coming into this episode from the opinion that believing that a fetus is not a person, um, which is closer to the way that I look at it, it's still immoral to just without a thought in the world have multiple abortions when there are other options available and it's not a, I need this. It's like, oh, I guess that's just what's going to happen. That's immoral because of the cost to society of that person being out of work consistently, like the personal cost of paying for that, the cost to their health uh, and factors like that. Like you can think that that's immoral, even if you don't believe in the personhood of a fetus. But I realized that as I grew up, that those people are incredibly rare. If they exist. If they even exist. This is such a straw man. And if they do exist, they're probably doing this behavior because of poor education or complete lack of access to other forms of birth control. Also, I'm going to get back to this later, but just because I think it's immoral, that doesn't mean that I think it should be outlawed today and done and over with. Like, I think that factory farms are immoral. I think that probably 90% of the food that we eat as Americans is morally tainted, either because it came from abused animals or migrant workers or child labor. But that doesn't mean that I think all of those things should be done illegal over with tomorrow and we can just live through the national food shortage for a few years. And the ones of us who don't starve to death will be eating completely ethical food 10 years from now. I, I think that that it would be great if those things were, were over with tomorrow, but that's not reasonable. I think what should be done is that we should start taking steps right now to get us back on a moral path. Yeah. So I want to talk about specifically what were you hearing in church from the pulpit? So how is this how you would hear abortions talked about? Is this like so you'd hear your pastor talking about women who get them like as if abortions are super commonplace with worldly women? Yes. The IFB would say that worldly women in general go out, they party, they have sex with many men, and they don't use any kind of birth control. Of course, there's the alternate belief that doctors will tell you that birth control is like 99% effective, but that that's not actually true. And that can be combined with the belief that pharma companies are allowed to lie about birth control effectiveness so that Satan can get more abortions in. Wait, what? Hold up. <laughs> Oh, so, right. I said I said something that's completely nuts without thinking about it again. Yes, I've never heard this before. This is okay. What? So okay, so you remember back a couple episodes ago when Kent Hovind would consistently just float these crazy theories, and oh, he yes. could get away with saying whatever he wanted because he would follow it up with like, "Oh, well, I'm not saying it's true. It's just a theory." But what if? Oh, so basically, like a do your own research. So like the thing about birth control not being effective, that's just one thing that I've heard like floated like that. Nobody's saying that it's true, but in the IFB as a whole, 
and not just about this issue, but about many things, they will just kind of float this like, well, what if statement? So obviously we know that birth control isn't 100% effective. Um, and it's also susceptible to human infallibility, especially right. hormonal birth control. If you take your pills or you miss a pill or you, you know, you, you take it at the wrong time. But like how much of this is crazy conspiracy theories? How much of these like actually seep out into the mainstream? Well, have you heard about this little thing called QAnon? So we're going to have to talk about that eventually because the overlap of IFB people to Q people isn't like quite a circle. But like, I'm serious because like I, I, I know that like there's plenty of people who are anti-abortion who understand, okay, well, birth control is effective. Well, I bring up the Q, I bring up QAnon because I think that the Q message board is an excellent example of how those what ifs get passed along and people eventually think that they're reality. Because it's it's the same thing that you see with any urban legend or chain email. Somebody just floats a theory and then other people pick it up. And before long, the theory is getting passed around as reality. So I think like conspiracy stuff like this within the mainstream IFB, like within the IFB as a whole, it does get passed along. As How much of it gets into main, like mainstream conservative thought, it's hard to track. So I haven't been able to really track down how this spreads outside the IFB. Um, may or may not be working on some things. Definitely not going to tell you yet. <laughs> but whatever whatever the specifics, birth control, this, that, or the other, these the IFB will say that these women go out and have so much sex. And if they get pregnant, they just skip on down to the abortion clinic on a Tuesday and are right back to the fornication by Thursday at the latest. Yikes. And they'll pass along these urban yeah. legends about uh, people who are going to the abortion clinic and like standing outside like, yeah, I'm going to kill my baby. It's going to be great. Um, they'll tell these urban legends about people who have had like 10 or more abortions. I mean, I'm sure people do that just to troll the people who, who protested abortion clinics. But yeah. Right. Why would someone be outside an abortion clinic saying that? What, is it because they're evil and they're excited about killing a baby? Or is it because they're fed up with the protesters and they need to get somebody off their back? Yeah, I mean, I know people who've had abortions. They're like, this was like the worst day of my life. It was so unpleasant. Like, you know, I mean, you know, people. yeah, and like, and like, some people are very happy and relieved that they're able to get the procedure that they need. But I feel like the people who using these more cross terms to celebrate, maybe it's just a backlash because there's protesters being complete and utter jerks to them outside the clinic so what is the ifb's view on when life begins so do different camps have different positions obviously they're going to all say life begins at conception but does that mean that life begins at implantation or does that mean that life begins at fertilization the ifb as a whole generally believes that life begins at fertilization oh the differences between camps come in more in how seriously they take that belief. I think a lot of more moderate IFBers say that they believe that life begins at fertilization, but then they don't really police people in their church who use forms of birth control that prevent a fertilized egg from implanting because they don't actually know how that birth control works. They will say, oh, this birth control is abortive or this birth control is non-abortive. And if you're 
Stephen Anderson, if you are super hard line on life begins at fertilization, you might say that pretty much any birth control that's not a barrier method is abortive uh, because because um, hormonal birth control pills and implants and rings and all the, all the other like hormonal styles of birth control, they function primarily by trying to keep sperm and egg from meeting. But there is a secondary function. If they do meet, they make implantation less likely. Birth or hardline IFBers will say like, oh, that's abortive because it could potentially cause a fertilized egg not to implant. But a lot of other IFBers will give lip service to the same thing, but then turn around and use the pill. Because like like we talked about in the Steven Anderson episode, the pill getting handed out to Hiles Anderson students. And it could be because they don't actually take the fertilization thing seriously, or it could just be because they don't know how that medication works. Or they don't know the difference between implantation, fertilization, and conception. Right. I mean, so, I didn't. Yeah. I, I had no idea until like my 20s. Yeah, you find out, oh, wait, this that, is a pill. I didn't know that fertilization and implantation were two different things forever. Yeah. And you think, oh, wow, so this pill works by convincing my body that I'm pregnant. Right. Like, <laughs> I mean, which is that's, that's not false. It's wild to to think about. They figured out how to do that. But yeah. um, so as much as it pains me to say anything remotely positive about Anderson, he has a better knowledge of how these things work than most IFBers and his actions do match his beliefs. That being said, his beliefs are terrible. Like, usually batch insane. Yeah. Yeah. So. His beliefs suck. But um <laughs> But he he is fairly consistent on this topic. Uh, so um, another thing about the unscientific nature of this, to get back on track, is that the IFB mm. consistently refer to Plan B as the abortion pill. Mm. And this is a, a prime example of the unscientific nature of these beliefs, because if you understand what Plan B does, Plan B prevents ovulation. So if you had unprotected sex, whether accidentally, poor judgment, whatever happened, if fertilization has already occurred, plan B is not going to prevent implantation and it's not going to terminate an existing pregnancy. What it is going to do is if you haven't yet ovulated, it's going to prevent ovulation from happening so that fertilization doesn't happen to begin with. The abortion pill is a completely different thing. But this makes sense, though, with their their take that, oh, women are out here just screwing around and then getting abortions the next day. Like they're because they think, oh, well, you go to the Rite Aid, you get a plan B. That's an abortion. Because to quote the IFB, you can get an abortion pill over the counter at Walgreens. I mean, that's medically inaccurate. Oh, because a lot of people, they don't know the difference between plan B and an actual like medication abortion. So the life begins at fertilization. That is an extreme stance, even among people who want abortion banned. Saying that you believe it isn't unusual, but actually living up to it is fairly unusual. I do think this would be a good place to talk about the main reason that I don't believe life begins at fertilization. And this is a little bit, it's more of a logic problem than anything else. So excuse me for getting a little philosophical. No, that's fine. Go for it. But this, this is what, this is my personal belief. And this is what I'm going to do throughout this episode. I really just want to share with our audience what changed my mind and where I landed to encourage people to research and learn themselves. So the reason and we're not telling you what to think either. No, we're telling not you, in this one, you know. because I, the, because that's not my job. The main reason that I don't believe that life begins in fertilization is related to the fact that I do believe in the concept of the soul. It's known scientifically that as many as fifty percent of eggs that are fertilized never implant in the uterus. 
much less like become a pregnancy, much less become a baby. And the whole argument of anti-abortion people is that an abortion kills a person who has a soul, right? So the whole thing is about when does God grant a soul to a person? We're not really, we use the words, when does life begin? But what we're really talking about is when does a soul become tied to a physical life form or when does personhood begin? So I think one of the points that it's important to bring up now is how common miscarriages were in the ancient world. So we know today, so say scientifically, 50% of eggs that are fertilized will never implant in the uterus. That's, if you believe it begins at fertilization, that's half of all the souls, right? Right. Today, we know that as many as one in three pregnancies that do implant end in miscarriage before the woman or the person who has the uterus even knows that they are pregnant. So in the ancient world, it was something like one in three of those that got past that point would also end in miscarriage. So say you you know, cut out the 50% of eggs that are fertilized. The, that's the one in three of the one in three or the two in three of the two in three. That's 50%. That's more than 50% of all pregnancies ending in miscarriage, at least in the ancient world. So if when the Bible is written, life began at fertilization, God imbues that a human soul at that point, that means only one in four human souls ever make it to earth. I mean, even now, only we still have roughly that same stat of about 50% of fertilized eggs implant. And as many as 25% of the pregnancies that do implant are miscarried. So still, that's only 37.5% of souls now that ever make it to Earth. So this brings up a question for me, though. So if IFBs believe that if you die before you're born, you go to heaven, right? Yeah. Is heaven just full of fertilized eggs that never got implanted? Or like, are they just chilling up there as embryos or are they floating around or are they in heaven as people that they would have grown into? So the IFB differs on how they interpret this. In general, they do absolutely believe that all of those souls go to heaven. Some people believe that they appear in heaven as newborns and are raised by angels and by other people's souls who are also in heaven. So they like to kind of spend these tales about, oh, well, a a couple who was infertile on earth and really wished they could have had children, God will maybe give them some of these angel babies to raise, which is a nice thought. Uh, it's not yeah. Bible at all, but it's a nice thought. Uh, and then they, they, those babies grow up into adults in heaven and they just never remember or know anything but heaven, but they're still like a real human soul. Other people believe that everyone is perpetually adults in heaven. So souls belonging to fetuses that are aborted or embryos that don't implant whatever, just spawn as full adults in heaven. That's great. You miss the like the awkward teenage years. Yeah. Just go straight to like straight glow up. Yeah. Uh, well, um, I, I've, heard it, I've heard it thrown out there that we're all perpetually 33 years old in heaven because uh, that's like the prime of life and that's how old Jesus was when he died. But that's just wow. like, that's just like some people. Interesting. That answers a question I didn't even know that I had. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the ISP wow. has a lot of answers. Or you know. Well, I mean, it's good that they thought up answers for these things because that means that people are asking questions. Yeah. So, like, I mean, sometimes <laughs> sometimes you get something, you know, a stop clock is right twice a day, I guess. Um, yeah. I do want to be clear. I know that a lot – I know a lot of people personally who have miscarried wanted and loved pregnancies who do believe that their babies are waiting for them in heaven and that they will get to meet their babies one day in the next life. And I'm certainly not trying to knock that belief. I think it would be 
really nice if that turned out to be true. I don't think we should be basing life decisions in the world on Earth off of that because there's no way to know until we die whether that's going to be the thing or not. It's a lot of conjecture. And even though it's an, it's, it's an extremely comforting thought, and I don't blame anybody for thinking it, we shouldn't be walking around like this is absolutely how it's going to be when we really don't have any idea. It's amazing in general how little the Bible has to say that's concrete about heaven and hell and how much of what we think in the Bible, what we think the Bible says about the afterlife is not actually in there. But I just want to be clear, I'm not uh, coming down on anybody who does have that belief because it, it, it is, I, I don't blame you at all. And it's a very nice belief. And I hope you're right. So people who do believe in this uh, concept of life beginning at fertilization believe that God is omniscient meaning that he knows everything. And what I don't get is why would an omniscient God who knows which eggs are going to only live a couple hours or a couple days and which are going to implant and become eventually become real people, why would a God who knows all of that since before the beginning of time just be handing out souls like candy? And wouldn't that mean that thousands of people every day are just populating in heaven having only been alive for a very short time? I, I believe in a God who takes joy in the human experience, and that seems like a mismatch with God's character to me. And if God wanted more people in heaven, I think God can just make more angels. I don't see why God would have to do it through pregnancies this way, because that seems like just causing extra suffering. Also, though, it doesn't make sense for God to be dispensing souls to 50% of fertilized eggs and withholding souls from the 50% that God knows are not going to implant. So based on this, I feel like life doesn't begin at fertilization and the imbuement of souls just from a purely philosophical, logical point of view. I think that that soulhood probably comes later than fertilization. So that is an interesting point. However, I would also like to point out that God allows starving, natural disasters, genocide, murders, disease, famine, drought, I mean, it's yeah, it's possible God's like, here, you can have a soul. I'm going to kill it. I mean, that's that's like, that's completely <laughs> true. That was also an extremely Jewish point of view right there. It, it was an extremely Jewish point of view. Uh, I understand uh, that so much better after last week. You'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, th that's true. And so Maybe. this whole thing is kind of a logic puzzle and certainly does not prove uh, me being right or wrong. I do believe that God gives us the ability to use logic. And I also recognize that my belief on this part of the issue has no bearing on my real life actions. I feel I feel justified in having a bit of a philosophical runaround with my own brain. So I think now what we're going to do, it's a good idea to talk about the theological reasoning behind the positions that people take, what factors in, because I'm sure that many of people could tell you exactly the reason why they oppose abortion from a theological perspective. I'm sure many couldn't. Um, and just like Kent Hovind, we like to tell people what they believe because a lot of them don't know. <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm joking. We found a way to work some appropriate jokes into this episode. So I'm going to use the NRSV, the new revised standard version. Not the King James? No. Uh, yeah, I feel What's like if that? I read this in King James, it's going to trigger people. <laughs> I'm serious. Okay. So, uh, but I'm also hmm. like, I'm having a problem with the ESV, which was my version for years. And I'm going to tell you why on a future episode, but I'm having a breakup with the ESV right now. And now I don't know what version I like. So. What version do the Catholics use? RSV. And so I'm using okay. the NRSV, which is just the, the simplified language version of that. 
Like okay. it's, instead of dits, it's did. Okay, well, all of my verses come from the, the JPS, JPS Tanakh. Yeah, yep. JPS. I know what Bible version you should use. Yeah, the the good one. <laughs> Jewish on. Publication Society, baby. So I'm going to start with Psalm 139, 13 through 16. There are two really common verses that are used about this, and there are a couple less common ones. So Psalm 139, 13 through 16 says... For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works that I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me when none of them as yet existed. Wow. Okay. That's beautiful. It's poetic. Yes, that's poetic. I'm not going to say like... You know, I I could see where they're coming from. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. And, and Psalm 139 is a it's a favorite a favorite chapter of the fundies for a couple reasons. But it's it's also really beautiful. It's one of those things like it is well with my yeah. soul. It's something that's actually really beautiful that I that has kind of gotten ruined for me by the fundies. So the other verse that I want to bring up right now is Jeremiah one five, which says, "Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you." And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So those two verses. Interesting. Yeah, those two verses are used to kind of say, well, God, to to try to prove that soul imbuement happens very early in a pregnancy because it says before I formed you. And they're also used to, to say that God has a destiny for every fetus like basically that god has a plan and a destiny for every person from the moment of fertilization uh i Hmm. do think that those verses i i don't see why those verses apply to every person just because god had a plan for one person for david or for jeremiah before the moment of his birth i don't see why that applies to every fertilized egg or every pregnancy Hmm. So you know what, that, like that's that's really interesting because I don't know if I agree with you there because if God has a, a plan for one person, doesn't that shouldn't that mean that I mean are the are you saying well, that there's just... people that God doesn't have a plan for? God just like oh, f- I was not expecting that to go that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? No, I'm saying that God. Hmm. Uh, I, I'm saying that God had a special plan before birth for these two incredibly influential persons, one of which being a king and one being a prophet. But that doesn't mean that God has a plan before birth for every fertilized egg. Okay. Int- okay. I, I'm I get saying you. that these two guys were so special that God had a plan for them even before they were born, as opposed to everybody else who gets a plan from God, like whenever God gives us a soul, whenever that is. But I appreciate you having a different perspective. It's like my it's like my favorite thing when we don't agree. Here's I mean, here's a couple of uh, of, uh, of of scripture verses that I think maybe point the other direction. So the first one that I'm going to point to is Exodus 21, uh, verse 22 to 25. Uh, should I read the whole thing? Because it's kind of I'll just read the whole thing. It says uh, so when and this is from the JPS version. Um, So it says, when men fight and one of them pushes a pregnant woman and a miscarriage results, but no other damage ensues, the one responsible shall be fined as the woman's husband may exact from him the payment to be based on reckoning. But if other damage ensues, the penalty shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, 
bruise for bruise, which is interesting because in this case, you know, a, the, the miscarriage is not considered like worthy of a life for life penalty. Mm-hmm. It's worthy of monetary compensation, but it's not the the value of the mother if she were killed. So that that is that is one point there. The other one that I am going to point to is numbers uh verse uh numbers chapter 5 uh verse 11 to uh, 31. And this is a really really weird section that we have talked about before. Um I'm not going to read the whole thing of this. Uh, But it is undoubtedly very weird. But basically in this section, it says that if a man believes that his wife has been unfaithful to him and is pregnant with another man's offspring, then he can take her to the local Levite priest where she will be made to drink a potion made from the dust from the temple floor. And if she has been unfaithful, then it will result in a miscarriage. Yeah. So this one, yeah, so that that is in there. That That is a real head scratcher. And I remember reading that for the first time, like, mm, See, I what? wish, so mm. I really wish that somebody would go through and solve this. Like the thing, okay, you know of all the, like, the Levitical rules about uh, leprosy? Yes. How if you follow what scripture says about leprosy, you actually get a pretty good diagnosis guide? Yes, I've actually read that where they actually figured it out there. It's like, oh, okay, well, this actually make that's probably about the best that they could have done at that time. That's pretty cool that they yeah. that they kind of had it close to right about leprosy. And also, like, if you have leprosy, wear a mask and stay away from other people. Like, don't let people touch your sores because then they'll get it. <laughs> like, how good, how comparatively good this ancient text is at, like, telling people how not to get leprosy. Also, the whole thing about uh, shellfish not being kosher and pork not being kosher and those being things that if not cooked correctly are more likely to make you very, very sick. Yeah. So I am reformed. So we are well familiar with all of the, you know, oh, what what's the historical yeah. thing for the, so you know, just, people I talk wish, about that. I wish somebody would figure out what it was about this temple floor dust. Because I, have I a theory. feel like, oh my God, please tell me. Because I feel like this is like the same thing as the leprosy yes. thing and the unclean animals thing. Like, I know that there's probably something scientific that was going on, and I want to know what it was. At least on surface level, what is this saying? If you believe that the Levite priest has the power to make a magic potion to cause abortions in the unfaithful. So, on the surface level, this is saying that you must have an abortion if you're pregnant due to infidelity and your husband catches you, right? Yeah, that is kind yeah. of what it's saying. Yeah, but so my theory on this is that, like, so say you are a woman and you are married to a man who is constantly suspecting you of being unfaithful and you haven't done anything, but he's, like, really mean and abusive and he's always, like, suspecting you of being unfaithful and accusing you of infidelity, then you can be like, I'm going to go to the Levite priest, the Levite priest, uh, tell him to take me to the priest. The priest uh, uh, gives you this placebo-ass concoction that doesn't do anything, and then you're like, see, I haven't done anything. Uh-huh. That is that is my theory. So it was to like – so okay, to but here, so, okay, so yeah. what's the thing? Here's the thing, though. What if there was an innocent woman who had not been unfaithful, and her husband drags her up before the priest, and she takes the placebo dust drink, uh, but then she has an unrelated miscarriage? Like, do you believe that God would just, like, prevent that from happening? Well, it would have to be. The thing is that the miscarriage is supposed to be, like, immediate, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah, so. No, you're right. um, It's supposed to be, like, within certain hours or whatever. 
So that makes that makes sense. That makes sense. But of course, you know, this is this is ancient ancient Israel's civil law, and that's the part that we don't follow, like wearing fringes on our clothing and and not trimming our beards because Jack Hiles wants us all to shave our faces and um Okay, but isn't the existence of this law, as well as the earlier one, proof that the unborn do not yet have souls? I mean, you would think, and you would also think, um, if you read the creation story, when did, does the Bible say that Adam was alive? The, the scripture says that, that Adam was alive when God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So that would make you hmm. think that, that scripture says that breath is equal to life. That's interesting, because that's there's we're going to get into that later with Jewish... And, and there's law, yeah. yeah, and there's another verse that says the the life of the flesh is in the blood. So that would make me think that when there's a fully formed circulatory system, that that's when there's life. It's so weird trying to reconcile these like scientific things that we know now with the uh, yeah. But I like yeah. I I believe in it because I I know that scripture is an ancient book and it is not always going to be completely on like on point with today's science, but. The leprosy thing they got right. The, well, the rules about leprosy, the rules about <laughs> unclean animals, even even the rules about like sex administration in the Bible, that was that's that was something that in the ancient world could have prevented people from like getting sick and getting infections, and also made having more children more likely, which was good for like the community. So it all like, it all makes sense, and that's not proof of God's existence, but I think it's in the pros column versus the cons column. And I think a lot of these things will be found to kind of to line up at least vaguely. I, I want to like kind of sew up those verses about God knowing someone before they were formed in the in the mother's womb. I just see that as God knowing who that person would become because like, I knew my child's name like six months before she was born because we had her name picked out really, really early. But I don't know if that has much to do with when she became a person. Here's the thing to think about. If it's before you were formed in the belly, wouldn't that mean that life begins before conception? Yeah. And I, and can't that line of reasoning get into weird territory really quick, like tying in with the Quiverful movement and the Gothard, like IBLP thing about timing when you have sex, because they walk this real fine line around whether it is or isn't a sin to let ovulation pass by without giving God an opportunity to turn that into a pregnancy. I, the direction I was going, it was predestination, which would mean Calvinism. Yeah, that, but, I mean, that that too. So if, if God knew everything about you before you were born, well, I mean, they would say that, well, God knew whether you would use your free will to get saved. See, I don't know. Oof. See, that's a whole different. I'm that's not a, whole a theological scholar. I just th this is all just very weird to me. Um, it's it's interesting. Mm. Well, I think what we can get from all of these scriptures is that it's not an argument of is it okay to murder or not? Because believe it or not, the most liberal people and the most libertarian people and the most leftist people in our country don't believe that it's okay to kill someone. They, they really don't. I mean, it, this may be a mind blower to some people, but they're, no way. they're not liberals so liberal that they think that it's okay to kill a person. Wait, murder is wrong? Murder is wrong. I didn't know that. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> The, the question is about whether a fetus counts as someone or as a person. As I referenced when I was talking about the term pro-life, it's not really a question of whether a fetus shows evidence of being alive. It's a question of at what point should legal personhood be conveyed to a person sometime between the time that they are conceived and the time that they are born. 
I think along with the scripture verses, I think we need to pair those scripture verses with pro-life people's scientific reasons that they say prove that we should consider a fetus a person from either fertilization or implantation, depending on what they believe. Well, I think that once again, we have the same issue that we had with evolution where science, you know, science is wrong sometimes. And then they figure out, you know what I'm saying? Some people have theories sometimes. Scientific thought is like in one direction. And then they find out later, oh, we were wrong about that. Mm -hmm. But church doctrine is absolute. But for this, the cost of getting this wrong is a moral cost that a lot of people just aren't willing to bear. And the, mm -hmm. the consequences for getting this wrong are unbelievably dire for them. Right. And that's one reason that I really have sympathy for people who are anti-abortion in general. I don't have sympathy for you if you yell at somebody who's walking into a clinic. You do not know what they are there for. Even if they are there to get an abortion, you can go to hell if you're just going to get in somebody's face and yell at them and be nasty. Don't f do that. But yeah. average run-of-the-mill anti-abortion people who, um, who, who have basic manners and know how to be kind to others – that, that, that's why that I'm, I don't, like, I have sympathy for them and I'm not trying to villainize them because they really do believe that they cannot morally afford to get this wrong. Yeah. So let's go into some of these misconceptions that I okay. think people have, because there's a lot of things that you've been, that you were told or they, yeah. you know, people and I have, say, yeah. uh, I have citations for all of these that you will be able to, to take a look at. Yeah. And we'll post a link to those. Okay. So number one. Uh, one thing that anti-abortion people like to talk about is the idea that a fetus can feel pain practically from the beginning of pregnancy. Uh, I'm linking a peer-reviewed study, which was very interestingly written by one doctor who is pro-abortion and one who is anti-abortion. And together they agreed that there is very good certainty that a fetus cannot feel pain before 12 weeks gestation. And that pain felt between 12 and 24 weeks is possible, but not certain. And it's possible that a fetus could feel pain before 24 weeks, but there's really no way to know if it's the same pain that you or I would feel. Pain is scientifically defined as a negative response to a negative stimulus. Fetuses do have negative responses to negative stimulus between 12 and 24 weeks, but it, it's hard to tell like, if the receptors are really mature enough for them to feel in the same sense that we do. Second point. So that's ambiguous. So, yeah. So it's ambiguous, but definitely not before 12 weeks because there is a there's a structure in the brain. You can read the article if you want all the technical terms. There's a structure in the brain that is necessary for feeling pain and fetuses do not develop it until 12 weeks. So another thing that you will hear often from anti-abortion people is that abortion increases the risk of breast cancer later in life. This is something that gets printed in brochures and handed out at Christian organizations that pose as abortion clinics to trick women into not getting abortions. Um, which is... Which is not... Like, don't... Uh, well, okay, yeah. So if you were preventing a murder, you would feel okay with being dishonest, right? Yeah. And that's what they see themselves as doing. I don't know if you're Baptist, though, all sins are equal under the in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, yeah, but also <laughs> but also this one isn't. It, I mean, it's also these are the same people who think it's OK to murder an abortion doctor because you're preventing more murders. So like, it gets a little twisted morally. What you need to know about that is that this is a twisted statistic. The reality is that carrying a pregnancy to term and then breastfeeding 
reduces the likelihood of breast cancer below whatever your baseline was before that pregnancy. And additional pregnancies continue to reduce the risk very slightly below whatever your personal baseline was to begin with. So a person who is pregnant and then has an abortion and does not carry to term and breastfeed does not receive that benefit. Their risk is not increased above their personal baseline. It is just, it just, they just fail to decrease their risk. Does that make sense? Yeah, so it's the same sort of thing where I saw this, uh, you would see this statistic around that's like, oh, wearing a bra increases your risk of breast cancer. But the reality was that if you have smaller breasts, then you're less likely to have breast cancer. And if you have smaller oh breasts, God. then you're less likely to wear, wear a bra. bra anyway. Oh my God, that, that is exactly the same thing. Yeah. It, it is a real statistic that has been completely twisted into a lie. So it's a correlation, not a causation. That's that's what we're getting at here. Well, it's not even that. It's just that you didn't increase your risk. You just failed to reduce your risk. You still have the same risk that you started out with. The third thing that I, that I want to talk about is the story of Gianna Jessen. And this is a story that I think every person who was raised in a pro-life environment has probably heard. I've never heard of this person. Yeah, uh, you probably you wouldn't have. But I, I bet a lot of people are like, oh, that person... So Gianna Jessen claims to be the living product of a failed or botched abortion. And there are several stories going around like this that you can find online. Hers is probably the most prominent. So Gianna claims that her birth mother went in for a late-term abortion sometime after 26 weeks, that she had a saline abortion, which is an old procedure that is either rarely done or not even done anymore, and that she, Gianna, unexpectedly survived when she was then adopted by an anti-abortion advocate. And we are just not going to have time to get into all the specifics on this. So I'm linking an article for you all. The article that I'm linking has multiple more references that you can check out. The, su the summary is that her story changes a lot. There is not proof that she's telling a lie, but there is good reason to think that her story may not be completely accurate. The biggest claim that she makes that is almost definitely false is that she claims that she was burned by the saline used in the procedure. And the article I linked explains the specifics well, but that is just not the way a saline abortion works. It's also possible that she just had bad scientific and medical knowledge, and so she's explaining things in the way that they were explained to her and that they're wrong. Uh, possible, but she claims that the incident of being burned by saline led to a lifelong fear of fire. And not only is that not the way that a saline abortion works, but also the solution that is used would not burn you, even if you were submerged in it like a fetus would be. Like it's a 20% saline solution. The Dead Sea is like 38% and people get in that all the time and it doesn't burn them. I mean, it burns you if you shave before you go in. Like yeah. when I so when I went on birthright, they so they told all of the girls on the trip, they're like, do not shave your legs in the three days before we go to the Dead Sea or you will regret it. Do not shave other places as well because you will regret it. Yeah, that sounds like a very bad idea. But a but a twenty percent <laughs> a twenty percent saline solution wouldn't burn you badly enough to cause you to have a memory. No, that's not why it burns you. It's <laughs> So I think that there's good reason to think that Jessen is either embellishing her story or maybe more likely that she was told the wrong thing to begin with because she was adopted by an anti-abortion activist who raised Gianna with fetuses in jars around the house. So 
she had a bit of an unconventional upbringing, and I think that maybe the adoptive mother gave her skewed or bad or accidentally wrong information to begin with. But Yeah, see, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, it totally could have just been an accident or a conflation of some sort. But the, the bottom line is that her story is used as proof that abortion is murder all the time, and I, I, it is not a solid enough story to be using as proof for things. Um, I think I should probably take a break here because Chuck is going 1,000% nuts and kicking everything. Okay, yeah. So when we come back, we're going to talk about heartbeat bills. We're going to talk about Jewish law, late-term abortions. We're going to go take up the offering. Hey, it's Sadie. If this is your first time listening to the Leaving Eden podcast, make sure you go back and check out episode one, where we start the whole story. You might also want to check out our cult true crime series, The First Family of Fundamentalism. If you like the show, you can support us by joining our Patreon, where we have extended and uncensored episodes available. You can also join in the discussion in our Facebook group, Eden Exodus. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell your worst enemy. The Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really do appreciate your support. Now, back to the show. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Okay, we are back from our break. We actually might have to take another break later because this is a long, long, long episode. But we are back. We are talking about abortions. So next thing that we want to talk about, what's next on the list? We are talking about heartbeat bills. Yeah, we're talking about kind of talking points that people who are completely against abortion use to justify their point of view. Yeah. So And that leads really well into heartbeat bills. Uh, which is is something that's going on in a couple states in the United States right now. Yeah. So one of the things that keeps happening is that states will pass a ban on abortion after a certain threshold. So they will call them heartbeat bills because they say once a heartbeat is detected, so at about like six weeks, abortion's banned. Can't get one. They're sort of saying with these bills that legally, um, I'm trying to understand it. So you can tell me if I'm wrong here. Um, So legally, they're saying that life doesn't begin at conception, but life begins at heartbeat? Or are they saying life begins at conception, but you can kill it if it doesn't have a heartbeat yet? 
I think the thing that- the the vibe that I get from those, and it's not it's not stated clearly, but the perception that I have of people who support heartbeat bills is basically um, they would believe that life begins at conception, but the earliest that they feel that they can legally get away with banning abortion is when there's a heartbeat. So it's like they're trying to be pragmatic and drop a net and make abortions as inconvenient as possible. So this brings up a question for us, which is at what point is a fetus not part of its mother and is its own organism? So that seems to be like the real crux of the issue here, because it seems like something that people in the medical community, various religious communities seem to be at odds about. And so one of the terms that is used is the term viability, which basically means if this child were born at X number of weeks, what percent chance would it have at survival? Right. With all the modern technology and the extremely detailed medical improvements that we have um, for helping premature infants. That's exactly my point, though. It's not a question of is it okay to kill this person or not, which is why I feel iffy about the term pro-life, because in that term, life is meant to imply personhood or humanity. The question is, when is this? when does this become its own person and not a part of the pregnant person? Yes. I do want to note here, before we move on to that, something about the term heartbeat, because heartbeat is another loaded term, like everything in this episode. So I've linked a, um, an article on this so that so that people can get more information because that article explains it better than I do. But what we're picking up on an ultrasound between six and eight weeks, they call it a heartbeat. That's really like a polite term to make the pregnant person feel better. The way that pro-life people utilize the term heartbeat, it seems that they think that there is a formed functional heart that is pumping and circulating blood through a circulatory system in a six to eight week, eight week gestation fetus. And that's certainly what I believed when I was in the pro-life movement. That's not really accurate. When did that change for you? When did you realize otherwise? This heartbeat thing I found out pretty, pretty recently. It would have been in the last few years sometime, though. Because they the way they use the term heartbeat, you think there's like a heart with chambers, right? Yeah, you and- think a dump, 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 dump. Dump, dump, right. Like the sound you- that you hear on an ultrasound machine in those very early weeks is not the fetal heart. That is a sound that is created, manufactured within the ultrasound machine to mimic the pulses of electrical activity in the tissue that will eventually form itself into a heart. So they're detecting electrical activity. Yeah, there is like there is activity there. There is because, you know, your muscles work on electrical activity. Your brain sends an electrical signal to your muscle and your muscle moves. So in a fetal heartbeat at that very, very early gestational age, the the part that will later become the brain is sending signals to the bit of muscle that will later be the heart. And that muscle is rhythmically or semi rhythmically contracting. But that heart it does not have chambers and is not actually circulating blood. So heartbeat is that's a term that I tend to take issue with because I think that that goes to show people who are interested in this how unformed a fetus is at six or eight weeks gestational age. We went to OMSI. Yeah, we we, we went we to saw, OMSI. We and we saw a, I think the first the earliest sample that they have is a fetus that was forty two days gestation. Yeah. And it's it's like the head of a pin. There there's no it doesn't 
begin to look like a tiny little sort of humanoid creature until about nine weeks gestation. Yeah. And six six weeks you know, is, clo- is, you know, considerably far from that. Yeah. You know, like that's the thing about development is it's not linear. Yeah. It kind of starts to look like a person at nine weeks. And then by 12 weeks, the fetal samples that we saw at OMSI start to look like a little baby doll. And as I discussed earlier, there's a, there's a part in the brain that is responsible for the sensation of pain. And that part of the brain doesn't grow until about 12 weeks gestation. So that's my issue with the term heartbeat. And going back to viability, that very much informs what I personally believe about abortion. Um, Many ancient traditions consider pregnancy to start when the pregnant person first feels the baby kick. Like which ones in particular? I, I have read that from, I don't have a source for that one, but I have read that from kind of all over the world, even as recently as Revolutionary America. Really? But yeah, because you wouldn't know. Huh. You okay? Think about it this way: you can people who have periods can miss a period because they're pregnant, but they can also miss a period if they don't eat well. Um, periods of extensive of extensive stress in life can also cause people to skip a period or more than one. Missing a period wouldn't necessarily be indication that you were pregnant if your access to food wasn't solid. Because you could have just not gotten enough protein or enough iron or enough vitamin C, or you could just be stressed because there was, you know, war or famine or plague or whatever. Wild beast. Yeah. So all of the things that uh, you could die by in the Unatana Tokif. Yes. All of the things (laughs) in the Unatana Tokif, all of that. But so people didn't necessarily consider, oh, I missed a period. I must be pregnant. You didn't you you would miss a period and you would go, oh, I might be pregnant. But they didn't really consider pregnancy to begin until the person started to feel the baby kicking. But it's called the term that you would be searching for if you wanted to find a source would be quickening. Uh, I just forgot to look up the source for that one. (laughs) But yeah, that is something I have heard. That's a term you've heard. Okay. Yeah. Quickening is a term I have heard. Yeah. So that's that's the term you'll be looking for. Um, And that first kick typically happens between week 16 and week 24 towards the later end for first time pregnant people towards the earlier end for people who've had more than one child before week 20 is the most common time in my pregnancy with Chuck. I felt, um, I felt some little movements like at 19, 20 weeks, I didn't feel a kick until about halfway through week 21. And What's really interesting is that with modern technology and all the advancements that we have for saving premature babies, the beginning of viability is now considered 24 weeks. Although some babies have survived being born earlier than that, many but not all babies born at 24 weeks, which is just barely over halfway through an average pregnancy, can survive. And at 28 weeks gestation, the chances are very good that with our modern technology, the baby would be able to survive. From talk, I've talked to a neonatologist about this several years ago, and his opinion was we would never really advance beyond 20 weeks. Like that's still going to be the beginning of viability. That's probably as far as science is going to be able to go. Interesting. In, at least in our lifetimes. Huh. So, so the chance of survival at 20 or 21 weeks is very low, something like 10%. Like it makes the news when a baby is born that early and survives. But yeah, once you get to 23 or 24 weeks, 
it is greater than 50%. And once you get to 25 weeks, it's like 70 or 80%. Um, so we're going to talk about that later on, but that that's how that works. And you know all about this because you were like, I remember when you were pregnant, you were just like, oh man, I'm almost to X number of weeks. And with when you get to X number of weeks, the viability is like, what percent I'm going to get a baby out of this, you know? I remember um, passing 20, 28 weeks is the point where you can kind of let your hair down. And you were and stressed. You were stressing, but you were just like. Yeah, I'm an anxious person. <laughs> so of course. I was stressing about everything. And now she's born and I stress about everything. But it's okay. <laughs> I deal with it. But yeah, I remember being really excited at 28 weeks because 28 weeks is when you can kind of, you know, there's never a 100% guarantee, but th th but this is probably going to end well. So personally, I, I find it meaningful that the ancient traditions around quickening uh, line up so closely with our modern idea of viability. And that that seems very meaningful to me. And I uh, also referencing that study where we know that fetuses can feel pain after 24 weeks. Personally, I believe that abortion after around 22 to 24 weeks should only be allowed if the pregnant person has a damn good reason. But what I cannot stress enough mm. is that any abortion after 24 weeks, there is a damn good reason. I've linked an article in um, in my sources about a mother who had a very late abortion. I believe she was past 30 weeks um, because her son had conditions that he would not survive. It, late term abortions happen when parents were thrilled to be pregnant. Parents that have set a baby shower date and made a registry and decorated a nursery and they find out that their baby has a condition that they may not live to birth or they may only survive for days or hours. Heartbreaking stuff. I, it's hard to even talk about it. Like those parents, they find out mm. that if they allow their baby to be born, they are only going to live a very short and very painful life. Just devastating conditions that people find out about that late in pregnancy. So one of the things that I, I like doing this show with you, one of the reasons why is that you and I don't really, we don't really care for orthodoxy. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, yeah. So orthodoxy, and I'm not talking in terms of like religion, uh, but orthodoxy in terms of, you know, what are you allowed to think? What is the correct thing to think? And there are times where, you know, sometimes we censor ourselves a bit uh, because we got to take this maybe a little too spicy, but I like that. Yeah. But I like that, you know, we have a platform to speak our minds. Um, now I bring this up because, so the stance that you took right there, you're just like, if you are like, if you're going to get one after 24 weeks, you like better have a good reason. That's a stance. Now, obviously if you're anti-abortion, uh, or if you're, you're pro-life, uh, you think life begins at conception, you're going to hate it. But I know plenty of people, you know, the people, a lot of people who are our age, a lot of people who describe themselves as socially progressive, you know, people who we're friends with, a lot of these people, listeners to our show, you know, maybe they hear you say that and they're possibly a bit peeved about that. That's maybe yeah. a bit more restrictive than they would like to hear from you because they're going to be the types that are like any abortion for any reason is okay mm -hmm. and nobody else's business. And that's what I meant by, you know, if, you, if you've ever, if you've never not liked me then this is the episode to listen to because I, yeah. I feel like very few people share that middle of the road stance that I do because the most progressive among us are in favor of abortions no matter what point in the pregnancy, no matter the reason, it is the choice of the pregnant person. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I do believe that it is immoral after a certain length of time in a pregnancy to have an abortion that isn't justified. However, I also believe that it's almost impossible that someone would carry a pregnancy that long and then just decide to abort because they didn't feel like being pregnant anymore. Well, it would be the height of forget like caring about the 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 child or whatever. It would be the height of irresponsible personal health decisions to make that right, right? That to go through that much decision for the pregnant person. Because yeah. at that point having gone through a pregnancy to almost the third trimester or the third trimester, you've permanently changed your body. Like you you've permanently changed your physical health. And and that so I don't think that people do that very often. I have some stats about this later that I'm going to get to. I also just believe that okay, just my personal opinion list of good reasons that I would put my Sadie stamp of approval on to have a late abortion. There are dozens of things on that list. There are dozens of scenarios that I would personally feel that I would, even if I wouldn't do it myself, I would approve of it if someone else did. Mm. So because of that, I don't think that there should be any legislation that prevents these later abortions. Because first, who the f*** am I to impose my personal list of good reasons on other people? There are probably reasons that wouldn't make my list that are valid reasons and I just haven't thought of them. So I don't believe there's any reason for me to go, like, why would I think that I am the grand poobah of reasons to go and impose them on other people? I find that absolutely ridiculous. Hmm. Um, I am just not that special. Also, the reason that I don't believe that there should ever be legislation preventing these later abortions is that I would rather someone be able to terminate a pregnancy for a reason that doesn't match my personal specifications, then have a grieving parent have to go before a judge and explain that their baby is dying or already dead and they need permission to induce labor and get the baby out before they go septic. I would rather someone be able to have an abortion that I don't personally like than someone die of sepsis over a long weekend because the judge is out on the lake and their cell phone is turned off. I would rather someone be able to get an abortion that I don't like than one woman or one person ever end up like Savita Halaponavar. So who is, who is a Savita Halaponavar? So I hope I'm saying her last name right. I wasn't able to find a pronunciation online, but Savita was a woman who died in 2012 because of Ireland's anti-abortion laws. She had a planned pregnancy or a, at least an intentional pregnancy. And she sadly began having a miscarriage at 17 weeks pregnant. Oh, because of the details of what happened to her medically, unfortunately, the loss of that pregnancy was inevitable. There was no way to save it. But the fetus still had a heartbeat. So she needed to have an abortion to complete that miscarriage. And part of the procedure that would need to be done to her would either be inducing labor so that the the baby would come out and the baby would shortly thereafter die or die in the process of birth or to have the fetal heartbeat stopped and then get the baby out. Like one of one of two ways. That was what needed to be done to save her life. And the death of the fetus was inevitable. But because of the strict abortion laws in Ireland in 2012, the doctors treating her refused to do the procedure. So 
because the doctors refused to do the procedure, she got sepsis and she died a horrible and painful and completely preventable death. That is not the loss of her life is not acceptable to me. So I, I I'm more concerned about the loss of her life and the loss of others like her than I am the loss of a fetal life when I cannot when I when there is no proof that the fetus is a, is a whole person. There is proof that Savita was a whole person. But I want to talk about a term that you used, which is late term abortions. Um, so also known as what third trimester abortions. There's sort of an abortion boogeyman because if somebody is trying to argue really hard about the amorality of abortion, chances are they are going to talk about late term abortions because they are the most gruesome and the most traumatic form of this procedure. There are there are a lot of good reasons for someone to need an abortion after 24 weeks. And uh, my my other thought on that is providing access earlier would probably prevent people from wanting to go that long because I I just I don't think that any reasonable person would want to carry a pregnancy that long only to abort. That makes zero sense. Of course, the world is full of unreasonable people and at 24 weeks, though, you are already more than halfway through the president, the, the pregnancy. So 24 weeks is six months. That is a long time to be pregnant before deciding, you know what, I don't want to be pregnant. I don't want to have a baby. Also, like a late term, a late term abortion is labor. It's a painful shot and then an induction, like full on labor and delivery and recovery, just like you would recover from a live birth. You got to push. You got to. It, it lasts for hours. Hours, if not days. I, I believe the one that in the article that I linked, um, mm. I think her induction lasted two days. And I, I don't oh. think I, I think that, of course, there's always a chance that somebody might, like I said, choose to do that for reasons that I don't agree with. But I, I think that, that those people are very rare, and I think that almost nobody would do that if they had access to a much easier and much less risky abortion at eight weeks. One thing that we're just not going to have a lot of time to discuss in this episode is the misuse of the term partial birth abortion. If I can sum it up really quickly, an abortion on a healthy third trimester fetus just because the person carrying that fetus does not want to be pregnant is exceedingly rare. I have a statistic to tell you how rare. In one of the most liberal states for abortion in the United States, in New Mexico, there were four total third trimester abortions in 2014 and two in 2015. And that is including people who did it for health reasons, like I have talked about before, and anybody who potentially had an elective abortion at that point in pregnancy. Four hmm. total and two total. Several articles about this. So the, the article that you're looking from for one is from Forbes. That's one with the New Mexico statistic and the article about the mother who had a third trimester abortion because her baby had an unsurvivable medical condition is from Jezebel. We're also not going to have time to get into the whole discussion about whether abortion is moral if a fetus has a condition that's not going to cause that's going to cause them not to live until birth. We're not going to get any, any deeper into that than we have. But my opinion is reduce suffering wherever you can. Do what the pregnant person thinks is going to help them and bring them closure. And if you personally believe, I know a lot of our listeners probably do believe that in that situation, God would have you carry that pregnancy as long as you can and pray for a miracle. If you believe that, you have my full support and love. But 
in all kindness, you do not have the right to tell someone else to do that. I fully support anyone who really believes that God would have them do that. But you cannot just tell somebody else to do that. One appeal that I have heard from time to time um, from people advocating for abortion bans, and I have seen it shared on Facebook, on Twitter, by people who I guess are either historically illiterate or just supremely insensitive, is that they will compare abortion to the Holocaust. You know what I'm saying? So they'll say oh, yeah. six, six million Jews died in the Holocaust. But will you stay silent when six million unborn are murdered every year or something? You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You've seen those. Well, you know, fundies, everything is the Holocaust. Masks are the Holocaust. Abortion is the Holocaust. Everything well, is. You know why it is? It's because so in the zeitgeist of American culture, Nazis are the supreme evil. They're like the worst. Yeah. Like, yeah, especially, you know, but people love comparing anybody that they hate to Nazis. And I guess if you're mega against abortion, you'd want to compare Planned Parenthood to Nazis. And this is just so this is just a blanket rule. If you, for whatever reason, feel the need to make a Holocaust comparison to anything, you should instead go home, flush your phone down the toilet, get in the bath, make yourself a nice cup of tea, feel whatever it is you need to feel, and then not make the Holocaust comparison because you then won't make yourself seem like an idiot and make 99% of Jewish people want to punch you in the taint for comparing not being let into a restaurant for having half of their family tree machine gunned to death and buried in an unmarked mass grave while their neighbors cheered. Yes. So, uh, mm, on this show, we are hardline. We don't, the Holocaust no. is the only thing to which we compare the Holocaust, period. Yeah. Uh, but this thing brings me to something that I want to talk about, which is situations in which abortion is actually life-saving, but not for a medical reason. Because, you know, earlier we talked about, oh, you know, your baby has a condition, uh, you could die of sepsis, uh, mm-hmm. won't make it to term. I think that it is ironic to bring up the Holocaust to make this point because the Holocaust was one of these occasions. Um And so now I will elaborate, which is that women who were enslaved in the concentration camps set up by the Nazis would often become pregnant as a result of rape by their captors. So if you were a prisoner and you became pregnant, it was a seriously bad thing to have happen, like worse than already being enslaved in a death camp. Your fate would be unthinkably horrible. And I will not talk about the specifics on this show because I do not want to put images into people's heads that they can't get out. But if you want to know, you can Google it. And that's all I'm going to say about that matter. But during these times, in order to avoid this horrible prognosis, you would have to have an abortion. Like there was no alternative. So this brings me to the story of Dr. Gisela Pearl who was a Romanian Jewish uh, gynecologist. She was deported and enslaved at Auschwitz. She was ordered to work for Dr. Joseph Mengele, who, if you don't know Mm -hmm. who that is, yeah, he is one of the most evil and sadistic men to ever live. Mengele instructed her to report pregnancies to him, but once she understood what was going to be happening to the women who she reported things so horrible that I will not speak of them on this podcast. She intervened to instead hide their pregnancies, abort their pregnancies, or if they were too far along, quietly deliver and then kill their newborns in order to save the lives of their mothers. Because if you will believe it, infanticide was the preferable option in this scenario. I mean, to save the life of the baby as well, in Mm -hmm. a way. Yeah. Um, 
because mm. it it would because it would be better for them to die humanely. Yes, do not Google this unless you unless you're me and no, you don't. just need to know everything. Yeah, but so the point of the story is even if you believe that fetuses are possessing human souls and that aborting them is equivalent to killing a child, there are extreme circumstances in which doing so is necessary in order to minimize suffering. Yeah, so on the show, we honor the memory of Dr. Gisela Pearl. And that that's it for me, because I, I think preventing abortions is just not possible. Because if you outlaw them, people have other methods that they will go about on their own or with untrained people. Look up Frank Sinatra's mother for that one, actually. Hmm. But I, I think that that's, it's not a reasonable goal. It's not going to happen but what is a reasonable goal is minimizing harm and min- minimizing suffering. And what this makes me think of is, as far as legislation, there is no way to predict every circumstance. We can predict that sexual assault and incest and other crimes will result in some pregnancies. But we can't predict so many other cases where something some circumstance has happened, some unusual circumstance, and abortion is truly a morally acceptable, harm-reducing choice. And the kicker for me is that no one except for the person who is pregnant can really know from an outside perspective whether their situation qualifies as one of these where abortion really is a harm-reducing and suffering-reducing choice. I, I just don't believe that legislation is an acceptable way to handle this incredibly fluid and personal situation. But speaking of law, um, I would be interested to know what Jewish law has to say about abortion. So, hmm. so Jewish law is a bit complicated on this issue, um, and I think it's really important to talk about because ab- abortion, that's one of the issues that the religious right will bring up when they talk about, quote unquote, Judeo-Christian values is, is the word that they use. They'll, and then they'll quote something from Ben Shapiro because he's the token Jewish lapdog of the religious right. But also, Ben Shapiro is not a rabbi, and as the saying goes, two Jews, 10,000 opinions. Or I was going to say three opinions, but anyway, in this case, in the case that carrying a pregnancy to term would pose a risk to the mother's life, not definitely. So this is like the situation where you talked about earlier where you said if somebody's got the the condition um, and they're just going to you know carry it to term and pray, like that mm-hmm. one, in that situation, it's not just permitted, it is commanded. Like it says, no, you you have to get one because, you know, it's just we're not taking chances. So Mm -hmm. in Judaism, a fetus does not possess a soul until it breathes its first breath. And the Talmud says that prior to 40 days, the embryo is mere water until it is born. It is considered part of the mother. That being said, it's not just until it's born, you can do what you want. If you want to get an abortion, you like need a reason to get one. The reasons are going to vary by denomination. For Orthodox Jews, if the pregnancy is the result of a forbidden sexual union, so like incest, if there are severe fetal abnormalities, uh, then it is blanketly permitted. If they, you know, they don't have hard and fast rules, but they're going to judge on like a case by case basis. So it's, I mean, it's not unheard of for, say, like, if you're a 16-year-old girl in an Orthodox family, you get pregnant, your family goes to the rabbi, and they'll just give you the go-ahead. Like, there's a lot of different kinds of Orthodox Jews. Um, There's a lot of different opinions on this. 
Um, but you know, if if your health or wellness is at risk, then they say you have to get one. There, there, there's a lot of variation depending on which Orthodox community that you belong to and your particular rabbi's position on this. And that I think that fits in pretty closely to my personal beliefs because it's a, it's a case by case thing. I I don't believe that abortion is just completely morally fine in every single circumstance. I'm far from believing that it's immoral in every circumstance either. The only part that I don't love of the the Orthodox Jewish plan there is the part where the person who's pregnant has to get somebody else's go ahead to make their own decision about their own body and health. Yeah. Um, but also I'm getting the vibe that it's usually like provide a good reason and you're going to get told yes. Mm, I mean, it that depends. I don't know. I I don't have experience with this system. I've only read about it. Your results may vary. Yeah. Uh, See, I, I think that the the do the right thing for you in your circumstance, that, that's exactly what I'm saying, though, that this is this is not a black and white issue. And I, I think that trying to make hard and fast rules is foolhardy. It's not a perfect system, but I personally think it's probably better than saying no abortions after six weeks. Um, yeah. And of course, people could but people don't like case by case basis for things. People like hard and fast rules and absolutes. And so that's why that that doesn't really fly so much. Right. Well, also yeah. on a case by case, you know, in, if we were going to legislate that way in the United States where it's a case by case basis, well, who's going to be the decider? Is it yeah, going right. to be like, a judge? Because nobody should have to go before a judge. I mean, you don't have to go before a judge if you want plastic surgery to prove that you can do it. You don't have to go to, before a judge to get an appendectomy if you need one. You don't need to go before a judge for hundreds of medical procedures. And and I don't believe that it's fair for someone to have to go before a judge to decide what's going to happen with their own body, like whether or not I'm going to be pregnant. Right. And whether or not the judge gives you approval is going to depend heavily on what state you're in. And, and, and the judge's personal the beliefs. Judges. Yeah. So that's, that's like that's just as bad as, as legislating it, which is why I really believe that the only fair thing to do is not to work this through the legal system other than some some basic common sense regulations. And because I just I really think the only way for this to be fair or just or anywhere close to fair or just is to let people is to let people make choices for their own bodies. Mm. I just I think that's I think just think that's the closest thing that we can get to this being just. But this this brings me this about having to ask a rabbi. I did want to say there are some women who say that they're happiest and truly consenting to be submissive to their husbands and like the have more of like a complementarianism or even a biblical patriarchy point of view. Definitely not for me. Uh not being an equal partner is not something that I'd be willing to do in my marriage. But if someone says they're happy to live that way and it's really, truly what they want, I feel like it's kind of so feminist that it comes around the it comes around back and becomes anti-feminist if I say that she shouldn't be able to have that. In that case, if I say, no, you can't be submissive to your husband, you're not allowed to live that way. It's horseshoe theory. Yeah, it's horseshoe theory because yeah. I'm kind of saying, well, actually, you don't have the power to decide what you do with your life. I do. <laughs> if someone says that she's willingly doing that, I, I don't feel right telling her that she's wrong. So I want to move on to different Jewish denominations because conservative Judaism is far more liberal than Orthodox. Yes, I know that is confusing. If you're Jewish, conservative means liberal. 
Right. Uh, but so the conservative movement explicitly recognizes the that like threats to the mother's life and health include her psychological and mental health reform movement, which is generally like a little bit more liberal than the conservative, takes a similar approach to the conservative movement on this. However, if you are reform, I think that you are probably significantly less likely to go talk to your rabbi before getting an abortion. Um, I think that if you're reform, you're less likely to include your rabbi in health decisions in general. And if you're, I mean, I guess if you're conservative as well, your rabbi might be a woman anyway. But this is a bit, this bit is interesting because in Israel, which is the religious rights favorite country after America, abortion is totally legal. Uh, but in order to get one, you have to get approval from a committee of two doctors and a social worker. So they'll automatically approve the abortion if the woman is younger than 18, older than 40, if she can prove a serious threat to mental or physical health, if the pregnancy is a result of rape, incest, if she is unmarried, or if she is married and the baby's father is not her husband. And in something like 99.9% .9 of cases, the abortions get approved. So it's kind of weird because on one hand the abortions are almost always allowed but on the other hand it's not fully and completely up to the woman to decide which is like a lose-lose if you're all about the ideology and the ideological purity of the situation yeah, that's you know like, that's like you want to be like oh that's good it's oh yeah, it's like that mm -hmm. meme that's that's good that's bad that's good that's bad mm -hmm. it's yeah. like that yeah but, but i see how that could be effective but that's kind of just like choice with extra steps though yeah so one thing to keep in mind is that when the religious right talk about religious freedom you know they're they're talking uh, and they're doing this for god they're talking about their version of what god's law is and religious freedom for them because different religions have very different rules on these sorts of things and their very strict laws actually infringe on the religious freedom of other people. So if you were an Orthodox Jewish woman living in a state that had restrictive abortion laws and you needed an abortion because of the negative effects on your mental health and you had the go ahead from your rabbi, the law of the state would be infringing on your religious freedom, which is kind of wild to think about. That that is like a mm -hmm. legitimate possibility of something that would happen. So that's what the Satanic Temple is trying to do with their religious abortion exemption. Oh my God! Don't bring up the Satanic Temple, man. They'll. I honestly, think that honestly, we're actually serious. No, no, I am serious. That 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 is literally the the Satanic Temple is not the one that believes in the literal Satan. The Satanic Temple is the one. That is that does not believe in any of it literally, but is a is a social activism group. Oh, okay, okay. They're okay, the okay, ones okay, who like you. okay, if you can have a Ten Commandments statue, then we can have a devil statue. So, oh, so basically, land. just trolls. Yeah, they're yeah. they're extremely effective social and political activist trolls who actually do pretty good work in a lot of circumstances. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. So they have they have a a religious religious abortion right. Because one of the key tenets of their church is, or, you know, air quoting church, is that you have the right to decide what goes on with your own body. Hmm. It's both literal and tongue in cheek. But the, the whole point is that this is an infringement on somebody's bodily rights. Atheists, I, I mean, this is my take on this, is that I think atheists debating Christians on this and trying to, like, atheists explain Christian beliefs on abortion is going to be about as effective. Do you remember that? In your Monster Energy episode, in our Monster Energy episode, when oh, I remember that episode well. That was a great episode. Oh, man, 
I wonder what Christine's up to these days. Those were, those were good times. Yeah. Christine said that she would go up to gay people and say, do you know what the book of Romans says about you? And the whole yes. like hate the sin, love the sin. You know that nonsense? Mm -hmm. It's I mean, it's exactly the same thing. If you're an atheist and you're trying to go and to like explain to religious people why their beliefs are wrong, you're just like you're not engaging on any kind of level where there can be a dialogue. And we've gotten into such a hard, hard line position on either side of this where the anti-abortion people are really, truly life or death serious about their cause. And but they've gotten so far that they send death threats to doctors and blow up clinics uh, the the OBGYN that delivered my husband was shot and disabled by someone who was angry that he performed abortions. Wow. Yeah, and then later on he got stabbed. Ugh. Yeah, people tried to kill him at least twice that we know of. That's horrible. So, and that's, I don't know, that doesn't seem very pro-life. But I, I kind of think that extremism on the right leads to extremism on the left because leftists can feel so passionate about protecting what they see as human rights. Well, it leads to things that are a bit crass and people celebrating abortions and, you know, people who will be like, hell yeah, I killed a baby because like they and that's the, I don't prefer that. It's a bit crass for my taste. It's a it's a backlash to extremism on the right that is actually did, actively trying to kill people that provide medical care. Did you watch BoJack Horseman? Uh, no, I keep meaning to because I keep hearing it's excellent. There, there's a link to a song that I'm going to say. There's a character in the show that's like a, a pop star, and she comes out with a song about getting an abortion called Get Dat Fetus, Kill Dat Fetus. Oh, my. It's, well, that's exactly what I'm talking about. It, it, it's, a, it's a reaction to... But, but we wouldn't have people who are celebrating that to that extent if access to a medical procedure weren't prevented. Right. So it's extremism that breeds extremism on both sides. Extremism always brings it breeds extremism. Yeah. And I hate to even like hear myself say the term. Even saying the word both sides is grating to me. Oh no, I have to say both sides because I'm very Jewish, and both sides on their extreme fringe levels vehemently hate us and are actively working towards our destruction as oh a people. right yeah you do have yeah. that whole that whole thing we have that whole thing people don't want to talk about it people don't want to admit it people are as much as the term both sides bothers me in most contexts in this context it really is it's extremism creating extremism because some people are 1000 percent convinced that this is murder and yeah. that's that's a really intense situation to be in well, yeah, one thing that I was thinking about is, you know, when we try to go through all the different positions and say, why does this person think this without, you know, saying that that person is evil? Because in reality, people believe that the position that they have taken is right and just and moral. These people believe that they are doing the right thing to the very core of their being. Like I see, you know, I see a lot of people saying, you know, on our side who will say, well, if you don't like abortion, just don't have one. But, you know, to, to people who believe that it's wrong. Um, who, who believe that it's murder it's as real and injustice as slavery as like mass murder so that's like you know so you know the whole saying where they're like injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere that's the quote that you know i'm sure many of our pro-choice listeners identify with very strongly that's how anti-abortion people or you know pro-life people feel about this issue and this crusade is legitimately life or death for them 
Yeah, because it, they believe it really it's the difference is. between life and death. And I just I don't want to lose sight of the fact that even though I wouldn't consider myself pro-life, people who do consider themselves pro-life honestly believe what they say they believe. Mm-hmm. They're not being disingenuous. They really do believe that this is this is a case of killing people or not killing people. So I, yeah, I want to talk about some of the things that changed my perspective on abortion. The first one was I was raised with that idea that I talked about where people just go around and have risky sex with the mindset mindset of, well, if I get pregnant, I'll just have an abortion. I had this idea that people just use abortion in the absence of any other birth control. And what changed my thinking about that was I learned what an abortion, even an early one, does to the pregnant person. I had been told a million times what it does to the fetus, but I'd never been informed about what it does to the person carrying the fetus. I learned what kind of effects that that can have on a person's body. And I realized that there may be one in a million people who has just had a dozen abortions because they just keep on having unsafe sex and getting pregnant and having abortions. But that is light years away from the typical reason that a person has an abortion. So what I realized is, though, I realized that nobody wakes up and thinks like, oh, you know what? I have the day off. You know what would be fun is I should go get an abortion. And maybe after that, I will go shopping and probably get some ice cream. That's not feasible. One, nobody does that emotionally or like schedule wise because things take time. But that's Well, you get ice cream after you get your tonsils out. I don't think that's how people like I don't I don't know. It's not a fun it's not a fun day out. And that's also not that idea is not feasible in a serious sense with the way that a that an abortion procedure works on a human body. This is not a fun thing for anyone. Just anecdotally, I've heard plenty of people talk about having a really positive birth experience, giving birth to a child. I've never heard of anybody talking about an abortion experience that positively. People may feel happy or relieved after they have an abortion, but no one does this for fun. Trust me, from someone who has recently been pregnant, the first few weeks of pregnancy are not a walk in the park. And nobody just goes out and gets pregnant repeatedly just to have abortions. No one in their right mind would mess with their hormones like that. Abortion is a medical procedure with risks and side effects like every other medical procedure. And nobody goes to have it done on a lark any more than you go to get a root canal for fun because you're bored on a Tuesday. So is this legitimately, I mean, this is, so this is what you thought. Mm -hmm. And I know like IFBs are a bit fringe. So is, but is like this, the mainstream belief that people have from that side of the abortion debate? Because I really don't want to engage in straw men here. I don't want to ridicule a position that isn't held by the mainstream of people as if it's the mainstream belief. There's this article, and I, I don't know. Have you seen this? Um, it's an article from The Onion in 2011, and it's a satire piece about Planned Parenthood's new abortion plex, where there's like an abortion factory and a movie theater shopping restaurants like Disney World for abortions. Have you ever yes. seen that article? Fundies thought that it. was real. Okay, but that's the fundies. Like what about the like oh. what about the regular run of the mill evangelicals who believe that abortion is wrong, but they aren't about to get got by an onion article? Like because fundies tend to isolate themselves from outsiders, but regular evangelicals are actually going to interact with other people 
outside of their, you know, in their day-to-day lives that aren't going to be within their particular religious circle. And they're going to understand that that's not how people usually do. So I want to go back really quickly and clarify what I said about Fundy's thinking that Onion article was real. They did not think that an actual abortion plex was opening per the article, but they did absolutely think that was the world that liberals want. Huh. And I, so I want to make sure that I was clear about that. As as far as your question about how how far has this gotten into like mainstream conservatism? Yeah. I don't know for sure, but it makes me think of the comments made by Ohio State Representative John Becker. And the bill that was eventually introduced that he supported in Ohio, which was House Bill 413 in Ohio, Representative Becker said in public comments, and the bill said on page 184, if you would like to look it up, that ectopic pregnancies should not be aborted, but there should be an attempt to re-implant the ectopic pregnancy in the uterus. And as you may know, that procedure just does not exist. It's simply not possible. Many people who have had planned and wanted pregnancies that turn out to be ectopic would love for that procedure to be possible, but that medical procedure just does not exist in reality. So an ectopic pregnancy is a pregnancy that, what, that it attaches, but not in... Implants anywhere but the inside of the uterus, Uh, most commonly inside one of the fallopian tubes, but there are several other places it can be. And so if that happens, like, you could die. You yes. will die. Uh, yeah. if, if it ruptures, you will almost certainly die. Um, so the only thing to do is to stop the growth of the fetus before it gets big enough to rupture anything and then to have a either a medical or a surgical abortion depending on what, what the location is and what's best for the oh, patient. Yikes. Yeah. Oh, and, thank you. And they're not uncommon. Like the ectopic pregnancies are not uncommon. People who are trying to have children on purpose get them, you know, it's a a thing that happens. That's an example of pro-life people being very misinformed about the reality of abortion. I think that misinformation is really a pitfall for the pro-life crowd. And maybe there should be more research into where this misinformation is coming from. Because I feel that there is a potential that this misinformation could be coming from malicious sources. Yeah. Sorry to do a Kent Hovind and just float a theory. I just have not gotten around to to doing the deep dive that I need to do into that. Well, that's what people are talking about when they say that our show is poorly researched. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. With my 12 references, I didn't have an additional 20 hours to go into that this week. More references than Kent Hovind had in his uh, dissertation. <laughs> It's not the belief that embryos and fetuses are fully human and deserving of the rights of legal personhood that I have an issue with. I don't believe that, but I don't have a problem with people who have that belief at all. It's putting your foot down on something that's a religious matter and purely ideological and saying, I have the only truth and being completely willing to upend other people's lives over it, especially when it's people who are incapable of being pregnant who are saying, I have the truth about this because they have no horse in this race. I don't have any. And, and again, um, not to to maybe go against a popular Twitter quote. I don't think it's wrong for, for a person who cannot be pregnant to have an opinion. But it, it I don't approve of people who cannot be pregnant saying that they have the only truth on this and that they are the, the arbiter of what's good and bad. That's a spicy take right there. That'll get you canceled. Um, 
Well, but you can I, cut it if you want. No, I'm not going to cut it. You said it. Uh, you you believe it. You back it. So, I mean, but I personally, I fully understand that some people believe that these embryos are fully human and that when you like, but when you take that belief to its logical conclusion and you declare this to be truth and you plant your flag there, I mean, it's a bit brutal. It's cold. It's uncaring. It's very ivory tower. And that is something that I just can't get behind. Yeah, I'm, I'm coming from a very similar point to where you're coming from. Back on the, the topic of misinformation, we also heard some misinformation recently coming out of Texas Governor Greg Abbott about the recently passed ban on abortion in Texas. About that law, Governor Abbott said that it gives people six weeks to seek an abortion. Typically, as I talked about earlier, the electrical activity in the heart can be perceived as early as six to eight weeks into pregnancy. But pregnancy is counted medically as having begun at the start of the last period. So about 14 days-ish can be longer before ovulation and fertilization actually occurred. And a pregnancy test at the very earliest can show positive as early as 10 days after ovulation. But it's more common for a person to find out that they're pregnant after they miss a period, which is going to be 28 to 32 days into being medically considered pregnant. So 4 to 4.5 weeks pregnant. So that's a very short amount of time that you've yeah, got. Yeah, it gives you yeah. about 10 days. If you are a person who's very on top of it and you have regular cycles in a world full of tear gas and microplastics, um, yeah, you have 10 to 14 days to find out that you're pregnant and seek an abortion. So those are just two examples of blatant misinformation. And I don't want to ascribe evil genius status to, say, Greg Abbott, because I just I don't know what he's thinking. On one hand, this law in Texas, I'm worried that it's going to criminalize abortion to the point that we see more situations of people like Savita Halaponavar dying because the laws are written in a way that doctors believe that they are going to go to jail or lose their licenses for a necessary medical procedure. I also think, okay, what if Greg Abbott and people like him do know that people don't find out that they're pregnant until a days or one week before that six-week mark? And what if this is because they want ultimately to punish women for having sex, to make it difficult for women and people with uteruses to avoid or delay parenthood, to make it harder for them to be leaders and make it harder for them to advance in life? What if it is really about controlling women? Because it really does seem that way. But also, what if their ignorance really is true ignorance? What if the abysmal state of sex education and science education has just failed men like Greg Abbott to the point that they don't know these things and they are they don't even know enough to know that they don't know. What if society has just empowered men like that to think whatever they say out of their mouth is probably right and they've never in their life been held accountable for what they say out of their mouth? Well, do you remember that guy a few years ago, the legitimate rape guy? Yes. Yeah, where that guy was like, well, if it's a legitimate rape, then your body is going to know and it's going to automatically prevent you from becoming pregnant. Yes. Like that, which is, but like that guy literally went his whole life thinking that. Yeah. Like I get like, the, I get the impression that something. he actually yeah. thought that. Yeah. And so I'm not saying that he doesn't have a responsibility to know better and do better. But also he's, he was like a lawmaker. So like he, he should have known mm. better. He should have done better. But also was he trying to be an evil villain? On purpose? No, he was just an idiot. No, like he, he like he legitimately thought that he was that right he, that he, he knew, right and side. he yeah. didn't think that he needed to look it up because he thought that he knew. 
Right. But like a lot of this stuff, it's just stuff that people hear and like knowledge that's wrong that they accumulate over time that, you know. Right. That- and that's an evil thing to say, the legitimate rape thing. Like that's a that's a horrible thing to say and obviously hor- horribly wrong. But also, I don't think he was trying to be horrible. So he just needs he needs to do better. He doesn't need to be made into a, a supervillain over it. Right. He needs to do better because that's terrible. It's so I, I guess what I guess where I'm where I'm trying to come from is like I don't I, I realized that every single abortion is done because a person needs one and that changed my perspective. Yeah. You want to take a quick pause so I can grab go grab Chuck. Okay. All right, be right back. Yeah. This is another thing that I was thinking about because say you're one of the more moderate evangelicals and you believe that there should be exemptions for rape and incest. I'm wondering, so what's the thinking behind this? Is it you did the dirty, now you have to suffer the consequences? Because, and and it's just being like, okay, well, they didn't make that choice, so therefore they shouldn't have to suffer the consequences, right? So in this case, it's not about fetuses being human lives that possess souls. It's about trying to create consequences for what they perceive as immorality, Almost like, you know what I'm saying? Almost like as if in the free market of life, the people who look at life as like, you know, the free market of life, Mm -hmm. most successful people are the ones who make the best decisions and rise to the top. So people who they see as immoral should have consequences for making what they perceive as immoral decisions in their life. Yeah, I see this, I see the answer to that question in two very different ways, depending on who we're talking about. I think that lawmakers and leaders in the pro-life movement tend to have that mindset of like, oh, well, you had sex that I don't approve of. Therefore, if you get pregnant, you should suffer through pregnancy, birth, and raising a child for 18 years. That'll Because that is what you deserve, because that's a consequence of your actions of having sex. Um, That's something that you'll hear a lot is like, oh, well, the consequence of sex is pregnancy. And when you had sex, you consented to pregnancy. So I do think that people get those people at the top definitely have the mindset of this is to punish women. The philosophical issue that I have with that is that the consequence is exclusively on people who can be pregnant and birth children. And I do not think that the financial consequence of paying child support could ever measure up to the consequence of birthing a child because you can get money back. You cannot undo birth. No. I think that, and that that's the philosophical issue that it's, I have somewhat of a philosophical problem with the idea that pregnancy and birth are a punishment. I have a huge philosophical problem with the fact that that quote unquote punishment only affects half the population and there is no way to bridge that gap. There is no way to even that. Well, there's a biblical basis for that. For, oh, Eve? Yes. (sighs) That's true. That's, I mean, that's the the argument, right? If you're going biblically, yeah. Yeah. I think, though, that the the vast majority of pro-life people do not have that concept of that it's to punish women specifically or to punish people who can be pregnant specifically. I think that the average pro-life people have kind of been sold this philosophy, and it's founded on um, some misinformation and, and bad science and shaky Bible verses, and and they've come out of it with a real sincere religious conviction that abortion is always wrong. So it's not that it's to punish women. It's that that the consequence to the pregnant person doesn't matter because abortion is immoral. 
No, that's kind of the per, the punish women thing is kind of the the take that you'd get if you were talking to like an incel who's resentful mm-hmm. of women for being able to have sex with chads uh, without consequence. And I, I don't agree with that religious conviction, but I don't have so much of a problem with people who listen to this episode and still do believe that abortion is wrong. I know there are probably some listeners in that position right now, and I do want to speak to them for a moment, because I know that there are people who are going to hear this episode who I'm not going to change their mind and they're going to leave this episode still believing that abortion is wrong. And I don't like, I disagree. If that's you, I disagree with you, but I have a lot less of a personal problem with you than I have with some other people that I talk about on this podcast in general. If I could speak to people who, who listen to this episode and still believe that abortion is wrong, I want to impress on you one fact. You cannot ban abortion, you can only ban safe abortion. My grandmother was an OBGYN nurse in the 1950s, and she saw so many patients who had seriously harmed themselves in the attempt to do at-home abortions. Many of them died, and she never forgot what she saw. So if you if you are really pro-life, if you disagree with my thinking and the perspectives that I've shared with you about why I personally support abortion rights, if you really do think that life begins at fertilization or at implantation, I want to encourage you to do a couple things because I know that I'm not going to change your mind with my words most likely. I, I want to encourage you to do some things that I think can actually make a difference. First, I would encourage you to think about where your beliefs come from and if there are any parts of your beliefs that are more about controlling people than about life and work to modify those parts of your beliefs. I would encourage you to consider whether having people attempting unsafe abortions is really any more morally acceptable to you than a safe abortion would be. Because I think if you're really pro-life, neither one of those things should be acceptable to you. And I would encourage you to really do some thinking and soul searching about how, about what, what is the best way to feel about that or what is the best, the best outcome for that. I would also encourage you to consider whether your viewpoint of abortion is wrong is consistent with limiting sex education, whether your viewpoint is consistent with limiting access to birth control, or whether those things applied correctly might help fewer unintended pregnancies occur and abortion rates go down. Because I think if you really feel that abortion is murder, maybe there are some things that you can do to help people not get pregnant when they don't intend to and to bring the the number down. Because I understand, I really do understand that if you believe it's murder, then no murders are acceptable to you, that zero murder is the only acceptable number. But I also think you need to accept that 50 murder is better than 100 murders. I think you need to accept that one murder is better than 1,000 murders. So here's a question. Here's something that I was thinking about, though, right? Because, uh, you know, you can't outlaw abortions, but you can outlaw safe abortions, right? Mm-hmm. Um what if, and this is probably a very fringe belief, people who believe that if you are the person who decides I want to have an abortion and it ends up being an unsafe procedure and it ends up causing serious, you know, a serious uh, complication or even death that, well, well, you deserved it. Do you think that like that? I mean, I'm sure that's a fringe belief, but like is, I mean, is there people who would, yeah, they're, they're like, yeah, I, that, that's mm-hmm. the consequences. Yeah, there, there yeah. are people who believe that. And uh, I actually have, I'm, I'm, I actually want to address that in a few minutes. 
I, I'm going to get to to a, a little bit of a piece about that. But I, I also I think that um people like that should maybe consider why they believe that way. That's what I'm talking about. Are there are there parts of your belief that are actually about punishing people who get pregnant? Well, I mean, a lot of people, they're like they will freely admit that. And they're like, they, they think there's nothing wrong with that. See, I'm not going to change that person's mind. There's there's not words that I can say that are going to change that person's mind. Yeah, fair. I, I just I, I think that I think that somebody who is so concerned about the life of a what I would call a potential person, what they would call a person who's a fetus, um, they would say it's an unburned person. I would say it's a potential person. But I think that if that person's life matters to you, that the life of the person carrying them should matter to you, too. So one thing that you may have noticed over the course of this episode is that I have not given my personal opinion on when abortion should or shouldn't be allowed. There's a very good reason for this, which is that I am not a medical doctor. I cannot say with expertise when life begins. I am not God, so I cannot say at which point a fetus gets a soul. And I do not have a uterus, so I cannot say what the personal cost of this might be. Instead, I have decided that rather than giving my opinion on uh, what should and shouldn't be allowed, I will give my personal hope for the future. And my personal hope for the future is that there will be a future in which this issue is no longer as divisive as it currently is because it is a wedge that drives people apart. And how can that happen? Do you ask? Well, with technology and science and particularly with the development of the artificial womb. Mm, that's interesting. Yes. The artificial womb is a device that allows a fetus to develop outside of a uterus. So in the future, we can get it out of you, I guess, and put it in an artificial womb and then give it up for adoption, I guess, if they wanted to. I don't know. That isn't very, uh, ideologically speaking, this isn't very pure of me. I have known to be vehemently against any ideology in general, except for sometimes. Right. But <laughs> the possibility to make this decades old wedge issue a thing of the past and not like that can't be given up on because when this comes to pass, we must be willing to once again take each other's hands and say, I am willing to move forward. Are you willing to move forward? Start this one As, out. Yeah. Science, get on it. As a person with a uterus, if there were a safe and effective way to use an artificial womb, if the procedure were free to the patient, and if the state would take on care of the child that res that would result from that procedure, and if it were minimally, minimally invasive, like no more invasive than an abortion would be, I could potentially see that being one solution if the person who was pregnant chose it. Yeah, this I is all just like hypothetical situations. I still, like I still wouldn't want someone to be forced to use it because that is still forcing someone to reproduce. And I still think that that's wrong. But I would think that something like that could be in addition to the portfolio of things that could prevent abortion. Yes, that, that's that's more what I'm thinking. I'm not thinking like, but, you, you know, just yeah, in the future. Oh, this is like I, people to do that. But I'm also I'm always this is for a thought experiment. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I'm always for more options. Yeah. So one of the things, one of the big things that pro-life people talk about, and this is something I think they have a point about in a sense, but like, I don't think that this is like a justification for banning abortion is that because they want they want women who uh, are considering abortions to instead give their babies up for adoption because adopting a child, there are more parents looking to adopt than there are available babies. And usually they'll like want an infant, not like a toddler or like a six year old. And like, that's something that, you know, pro-life people are like, but all those parents, they want babies and they're like, there just aren't enough babies for them. You know what? Like, 
fair mm. point, but I don't think that justifies like forcing somebody to to carry a pregnancy. Forcing to term. them, yes, forcing yeah. them to go through birth. That's that's I'm, wrong. I'm glad you wrong. brought this up because I do want to talk about this. I really thought that carrying to term and giving a baby up for adoption was a great option until I gave birth. Mm. Because people, I think people have this idea that recovering from birth is hard and it's long, but that you do eventually get back to 100%. I think that people who have not given birth think that the only long-term, truly permanent effects of giving birth are stretch marks and maybe a C-section scar. Which, I mean, still, like a C-section, that they like cut you open. It's, it is a hell of a lot more than a scar. Yeah. Also, isn't it true that if you have a C-section once, you can never have like a vaginal birth? Not true. After that. um, That's no, not you true. can okay, definitely do a V-back. If you have a C-section and get pregnant again quickly, it is not advisable to attempt a vaginal birth. If you have certain complications with your C-section or if you have multiple C-sections, it's not advisable to attempt it. Plenty of people do uh, do it uh, and do well, but it is, it's not guaranteed that you can ever do that again. Uh, also, multiple C-sections, um, you do get an increased risk of, risk of death. It just makes it more complicated. Because you can have a uterine rupture. Because it's basically the uterus has to stretch so big for a pregnancy. Uh, believe me, it's big. And that stretching can cause a rupture, which is often fatal. So it's it's not you can never. It's just that like with each one that you have, there's going to be it's going to be less advised and they're going to want to induce you early to reduce the chances of, of rupture. But that leads into exactly what I was saying is that having recently given birth, the first thing that I've learned is birth is not a 100% survival guaranteed situation. I had a relatively common issue when giving birth to Chuck. The problem we had has like a 99% survival rate in the United States, which is pretty good. But even with every odd in our favor. It was touch and go for her for a second. And that's why I didn't do my birth story on the podcast because I am like just now able to talk about it without just completely breaking down. Um, We were extremely lucky. Our birth team was absolutely fantastic, but Chuck and I could have both died if the team wasn't trained or if we had a different midwife who wasn't completely prepared. One or both of us might not be here. In the absolute best situation with a healthy pregnancy and great genes and everything in our favor. Every birth carries a potential of death for both parties involved. And for the, I mean, I could have died with everything in my favor. I went in with just about as good of odds as you can have for birth. And I still ended up in a life or death situation. For the large percentage of birthing people who do in fact survive birth, there is absolutely no guarantee that you ever get back to 100% ever. And again, I don't want y'all to worry about me. Like I'm, I'm good. I'm doing good. Um, like mentally, physically, I'm doing really fine. I have, I have good genes and I had a lot of things working in my favor to have a, a healthy birth and a good recovery. I'm incredibly lucky and I was pretty fit going into pregnancy. Like doing, I was doing headstands until my bump popped out and I couldn't balance anymore. There are so many people who, no matter how well positioned they go into their birth, they sustain permanent injuries during birth from fourth degree tears to diastasis recti. And there's never a guarantee that you will not be left incontinent with massive hip pain or unable to do a sit up for the rest of your life. And those are just the common pregnancy and birth injuries. And it is not fair and it is not okay to say to someone, you had sex I don't approve of and therefore you have to put your life on the line. And it is not okay to say to someone, you had sex I don't approve of 
And now you have to take the risk of, of giving birth and potentially being permanently injured from it. Before I get too heated about this, I do want to say I think that carrying a pregnancy to term and giving up the baby for adoption should, I think that's a very noble option. I think it should be encouraged and supported for people who are able to do so and would like to do so, especially for people like me who have, uh, you know, a lot of things in their favor and have a likelihood of having a good pregnancy, a good birth, and being able to continue on their lives afterward. I think that's, that's a really lovely option for people who are able to do so. I think that, as I've said, free healthcare for pregnant people, a guarantee that pregnancy and birth won't cost them a dollar that they don't have like we have in the state of Oregon through the Oregon Health Plan, I think that would help make people more willing to carry a pregnancy to term that was unintended and maybe give the baby up for adoption. I think that reforming the adoption system so that potential parents feel assured that their baby will be able to be placed into a loving home and so that potential adoptive parents don't have to spend so much money to adopt an infant, I think that would help. How much does it cost? $20,000? Oh, I think it's more than that. I don't know the exact Whoa. amount. It is. It, I think it's closer to 100000 That's to crazy. Adopt an um, is it okay if I shout out some friends, by the way? Yeah, if you go for it, if you okay. want to. Yeah. If you want to help some people who are working to adopt a baby, my friends Daniel and Kendra are raising money to do that. They want to become adoptive parents. I think they're going to be amazing parents. If you'd like to help them or just follow their story, uh, it's on the Facebook page, To Infinity and Adoption. I fully put my stamp of approval on them. They're going to do a great job. But following their story has really opened my eyes to the cost of adoption for intended adoptive parents. So uh, if you if you are uh, one of the pro-life listeners that I'm speaking to, maybe go help them out. I think also there are other near-term ways to have fewer abortions. Getting to zero, because as I've talked about, you cannot ban abortion. You can only ban safe abortion. And getting to zero right now is not achievable. And an effort to achieve that is just going to hurt more people than it helps. But fewer is better than more if you're of the pro-life mindset. So that I, so I think let's let's think about ways that we can get to fewer. And if you still think that the, the, the perfect situation is getting to zero, fine, I'm not going to fight you on that. But let's focus on something we can actually do. I think that providing comprehensive sex ed in schools, continuing the ACA efforts to make birth control not just available, but truly accessible to every person, I think that'd be a great start. I understand that people who think abortion is immoral are also likely to think that extramarital sex is immoral. But I think that if I'm right about what pro-life people really do believe, if I'm right that you really, really do truly believe that abortion is murder, and you're you're not one of the people who take that stance as a means of controlling women and people who are able to get pregnant, if you are who I think you are, take a step back on this one and understand that if you really believe that, it's probably better to prevent murder than to try to prevent extramarital sex. I know you probably don't approve of people who are having sex with people they're not married to and using birth control. I know you probably don't approve of that, but Sorry. but be reasonable. It's better to try to prevent murder than to try to prevent extramarital sex if that's how you see this. I thought in Baptist all sins were equal in the eyes of the Lord. Yes, that, that, I mean, yes, but also let's be reasonable about this. <laughs> I mean, you Catholics, you guys have mortal and venial sins, so... Yeah, I mean, so Baptists say that they believe that, but they don't remotely act like it, so I'm not going to accept that as an excuse. I also think that uh, another thing that we could do to help is fixing inequality in sterilization procedures, because you know who you know who does not have abortions ever? People who aren't capable of getting pregnant. Uh, I'm sure a lot of our audience knows this, but in America in 2021, 
there are still many states and many doctors who will not allow a person with a uterus to be permanently sterilized unless their husband will sign off on it or unless they already have a certain number of children or unless they have a girl and a boy child. <laughs> uh, mm. I have known people in I have known people in my real life in their early 20s who were firmly convicted that they never wanted to be a parent, that they would have an abortion immediately if they ever did get pregnant, and who were ready and capable of making the decision to have a permanent sterilization, but they could not find a doctor who would do it for them. So they were just stuck, hoping that birth control was effective. I mean, the person that I'm speaking of in general was married, but stuck hoping that birth control was effective, knowing that they would have, if they ever did get pregnant, they would have an abortion because they were fixed on never having a child, but not able to prevent themselves from ever needing an abortion. So I think that fixing that issue could potentially be a way to prevent abortions. More states accepting the ACA expansion, like I said, that guarantees healthcare to every pregnant person, that would also potentially be a way to make fewer people need abortions, uh, both by preventing unintended pregnancy and by supporting people who do choose to have a baby resulting from an unintended pregnancy. Expansion and maintenance of programs that make sure that no child goes hungry in America. Uh, state governments and local charitable organizations like churches being involved in the care of children that would otherwise not have existed from birth until age 18 all the way up, I think that would potentially reduce abortions. And I am not just spewing woke platitudes here, so I'm going to cite one of several sources available for this. Uh, the PubMed article is the one that you're looking for that talks about how the how other countries have gotten their abortion rates so low. And these are some of the, the ways that they have worked on that. I mean, but this issue, this is like probably the most divisive political issue of the of the past. Like, I mean, why wouldn't it be, though? Years? Why wouldn't right. it be? People on one side see the other side as literal murderers. And yes. people on side B see people on side A, horrible despots controlling every aspect of the lives of uterus havers. The bad guys in The Handmaid's Tale. Yes, exactly. I can see the reasons that people think that way. The fact of the matter is we can't just kill each other over this. I mean, we can, but... We shouldn't. We, we should shouldn't. figure something out. Yeah, I mean, I, I say this, though, because, like, so the other day I was scrolling through Twitter, and I saw somebody say some really inflammatory things about vaccines or something. I don't know. This is So this is one of those guys who likes to call himself free thinker, likes to break outside of his echo chamber, you mm -hmm. know. He's, he's a bit of a clown. So whatever, I, I click on it, you know, just to see what's going on in the replies, and here he is. As you he, do trying to resist the urge to get spicy all up in his mentions um which uh, you never do no never um he but like you know he talks about abortions in this extreme sort of way and then he goes on to say that he believes that members of one particular political party are satanic not just oh. like as a joke like saying satanic is synonym for evil but like he honestly believes that the members of this party are worshiping and doing the work of satan wow yeah okay. so i'm I'm not bringing this up because this man is particularly influential in fact i know with some certainty that his audience is much smaller than sadie's and mine and he you really mean much smaller than our uh, than our audience before this episode where we lose yeah everybody. where we lose like half of everybody uh, but like i'm bringing this up because 
I, I don't believe that he is a person to be taken seriously with regards to anything really, but I'm bringing this up because I think that the point of view that he has, this sort of abject hatred is deeply dehumanizing and is a symptom of a larger failure to see people who vehemently and passionately disagree with you to the core of their beings as human beings deserving of compassion. And granted, there are a lot of things here to work out, like there are like a lot of things, but even with everything that is going on in the world, I refuse to be cynical and I refuse to have contempt for these people. Even if I have shown contempt in the past, I like I believe it's regrettable. See, I, I have contempt towards certain people for, who I do really think that their yeah. stance on abortion is more about controlling others. I don't have contempt towards your average pro-life person, no matter how deeply I believe you're wrong. That is, I think that's a, a good position to have. That's that's also mm -hmm. how I feel. Sadie, do you, well, like, I was thinking about this, this divisiveness. Do you know the story of Kamsa and Bar Kamsa? It's from the Midrash. It's a famous story. You know what I'm talking about? You've told me this story before, but I would love for you to share it with our audience. This is, yeah. it's really an interesting story. So I see this country right now going the same sort of way as in the story i think that it needs to be avoided at all costs this is going to be long-winded i'm going to throw this up on the patreon uh, you can look up the story if you're hearing this on just on the streaming version uh it's out there it's that's sort of what's going on the moral of the story of kamsa and bar kamsa is that our displacement as a people came as a result of our internal divisions that we would rather see horrible harm befall one another that we would rather distrust and disrespect one another than see each other as humans deserving of kindness and compassion. And I currently think that our country is in such a position that we see our enemies as people who, due to their political or their religious affiliation, are obstacles to our own personal prosperity, that we would gleefully see horrible things happen to our enemies even if it came at great personal cost, because removing such a perceived obstacle would be necessary for us to be happy and to be successful. I I will admit yeah. that I, I don't see people who disagree with me as my enemy. People who have... I mean, you don't, but other people do. Yeah, I see I mean, it all that, the time. That's the thing. So people who are anti-vax, anti anti-COVID precautions... I don't see those people as my enemy. I see the people who have told them to be that way. Those people are an enemy. The people who are leading others astray, I see as an enemy. But the average person who believes that, I, I don't, that's not my enemy. That's just a person that I disagree with and, you know, would hope that I could have a civil conversation with. Well, the thing is now with the internet is that everybody's leading each other. Yeah, and that's that where with, it gets with social dicey. media. Social media, everybody's uh, following each other and leading each other. Yeah, it's, it's become a chicken spirals. and the egg scenario. Yeah. Who's the misguided mm -hmm. and who's the misguider? And to what extent are we responsible for having correct information? Well, the other thing is that people knowingly share bad information or they believe information that they know is bad bad because it reinforces their pre-existing prejudices. So if you see something that reinforces a prejudice that you already hold, you're not going to check to see if it's true or not. You're just going to say mm -hmm. that sounds about right and tell everyone else. Right. And I've I've really had to fight with that in my personal life. Like I 
get very tempted to do that exact thing. And I have, uh, I'm really trying to learn to fact check myself. Well, I've lost friendships after telling people, you know, this thing that you posted, this is wrong and this is prejudicial. And people were like, how dare you say that? You're the one Mm -hmm. who's wrong. You're against whatever this, you know, even though this thing is false, you're against the thing that it is saying. And therefore that makes you my enemy. Like, And you're like, no, I support that point. But the way that you're making that point is with false information and that's not okay. Well, sometimes I don't support the point. But that's yeah. that's on the other side of that. I'm not saying this because I'm trying to say, let's come together and pretend we don't have differences. Let's meet in the middle. I'm saying this because even though I vehemently de- disagree with other people, I still, you know, it's important to see them as human beings and like it or not, they have a right to their platform and to advocate for what they believe in. And I understand that those beliefs are deeper than just skin. So I'm not going to be able to change them with some infographics from Instagram or some viral tweets for, you know, your yes you know what i'm saying yeah and and that has influenced the way i've wanted to do this entire episode yeah because i realized that if i tried to make my point or debunk a certain point of view that i was just it was going to be fruitless so instead i i just wanted to share and i hope i've done it well i know i haven't been able to hit every point not even close but i i focused on the things that changed my mind and the things that have influenced my thinking on this and a lot of that was personal experience yeah, Not- and it, it's what I've personally learned and and how I have come to what I believe. And I hope I've been able to do that effectively because I could never cover this entire topic effectively. I'm not that good. If I could sum up the foundation of my beliefs, I would say I'm pro-abortion like I'm pro-appendectomy. I don't think that needing an appendectomy or having an appendectomy is something to be celebrated, but I sure do think that the ability to have an appendectomy when you need one is something to be celebrated. And I think not dying of appendicitis is something to be celebrated. And if my friend needed their appendix out and had that done, you better bet I would not be asking them what they did wrong to get appendicitis. I would not be asking them if they really needed the appendix out or if it was just more convenient for them. I wouldn't be asking them how they justified the decision to have it out. And I wouldn't be trying to make a moral judgment on whether I thought they were justified to have it out. I would just be asking if they needed a ride home from the hospital. So all of that to say, my personal moral beliefs are pretty complex. But as far as a medical procedure, I cannot justify dictating what is or isn't a good reason for another person to choose not to be pregnant right now. I just, regardless of what some people might think, I just do not think of myself as someone who has all the answers or someone who ought to be making that decision for others. And because of how complex this topic is, I don't think that legislation is the correct way to deal with it either. I think that the most pro-life thing a person can do is not outlawing abortion because it is 100% true and proven that outlawing abortion will lead to unsafe abortions and death. I think the most pro-life thing a person can do is to support with their vote and with their money things that can actually lower abortion rates. I think that was very well put. And this episode is long enough, so I think this episode we should is, end this it. Episode is, yeah, it's long and we didn't get to everything and it's no. personal and it's raw and it's messy and I... Just I just like an abortion. Anyway, uh if you can follow the podcast, social media, uh leaving Eden podcast on Facebook and Instagram, leaving Eden Pod on Twitter. Join our Patreon. We have new tiers available, including the Faith Promise Missions tier and the I Gave It All tier. If you want to send me your wristwatch in the mail. Uh <laughs> 
and I feel like this is a bad idea, but it's funny, so I'm yeah, gonna let I, I'm gonna let it ride. I put that up there as a joke. Um, if any of you actually subscribe to it, then I <laughs> we don't really know what we'll do. We don't know what we'll do. We'll do something. I I, I don't know. Um, the you can join our Facebook group, which is facebook.com/groups/EdenExodus. You can join our uh, subreddit, which is reddit.com/r/EdenExodus. You say, did you want to plug your social media? Yeah, <clears throat> you can tell me how much you hate everything I've said today. Um, please don't. Please don't. Um, no, you can find me on social media on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter Music. You can find me on Twitter at Hell Yes Sadie. You can find me on TikTok at Sadie Carpenter One. And you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Clubhouse at G A V R I E L H A C O H E N. Thank you very much. You guys have a good day. Bye bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.